You gonna do the thing? Mm. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Nashville, CA. Coming to you from California and Nashville, Tennessee. I am your host, Sean, and with me is your co-host, Josh. Hello, Joshua. Hello. Is that that's a fine? Um, oh, oh, what's his name? Uh, the old timey actor. Um, it's like uh, Mason, something Mason. You've derailed the show five <laughs> seconds into it. Hey, you're the one who started with a character. I didn't realize that wasn't a character. I was trying to have more bass in my voice so okay. I don't immediately lose it. So I was trying to retain some of that crash test dummies energy. Uh huh. So some but, of the gravitas. You know, I guess it would be more like this. You gotta talk like oh, fuck it. <laughs> it's over. Hello, Josh. Hello, Sean. How are you today? I'm pretty good. How are you? Oh, I am doing well. Um, it's been a few days here. It's been. You know, I I do that to people all the time, and <laughs> and I, now I've had it done to me, and so I know what it feels like now. <laughs> doesn't feel good, mm. does it? No, it does not. <laughs> It's that, and it's been a while. Listening to you talking you two to me, those shows broke me, where every time I hear it, it's been a while. Uh-huh. Yeah. We, well, you know, popular. it has been a while, Josh. It's been two weeks since we've recorded an episode, and last week we did uh, Novemba, and seeing that we're still in November, we're going to do a little bit of a Thanksgiving episode here for y'all with Home for the Holidays and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I feel like that's the order you wanted to watch these in as well. Yes, and it is the order I watched them in. Uh, Me too. Look yes. at that. Sometimes the universe just falls into place. <laughs> Things does make sense. So, Josh, I'm going to let you introduce Home for the Holidays because this was your selection. So, Home for the Holidays um, is a, I believe, what, 1995 uh, Jodie Foster directed film. Um, and really, I think the reason that I probably watched it, uh, in 95 or 96 was because Claire Danes was in it, even though not enough for my liking. No, no. And the thing is, okay. The cast is really charming, I think. And for teenage me, she would have been great, uh, to have some more of, but the admission right at the beginning of the movie that she's going to go have sex with her boyfriend was pretty hot to like 16 year old me. So I was. Yeah, but how does 42 year old you feel having teenage daughters? Um, we don't think about things like that because they don't do that. <laughs> that sex has been it's not cool anymore. So kids don't do it. <laughs> That's a relief. I guess I'm cool. Yes. <laughs> Uh, the nice thing is I've found that as I age, I can just kind of like, um, age up my crush in this movie to Holly Hunter, which is great because I, I love her in this movie. Really? I thought you were going to say Anne Bancroft. Oh, nothing wrong <laughs> guess, with Anne Bancroft though. I guess you got 20 years before you jumped to that ship though. Yeah, or I have to go 20 years back in her filmography to find something that's more age-appropriate. 
she's famously a sultry actress. Mm-hmm. I don't know her work. I just, I recognize the name as one of those boomer names where boomer guys talk about her and, uh, oh God, I can't even think of Estelle. Oh, no. Sylvia Warren? No, that's not a person. <laughs> what are you doing? Are you having a stroke? <laughs> uh, I just watched an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm and Leon texts Larry a video of Sophia Loren. Yes, thank you. Jesus Christ. Got it. It's starting early today, man. <laughs> so I'm, I'm starting to get concerned about my brain's ability to pull names. <laughs> or inability, I should say. I like that names still come out, though. You don't just, like, lock up. There's still a name there behind it. The sound is in my brain. So sometimes I feel like if I say the sound of the name that I'm thinking of, it will cause an avalanche of thoughts in my head, which will lead me to the correct conclusion. Mm -hmm. It's confusing, my brain. So Anne Bancroft uh, played Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate, which is kind of where her Uh... her cougar status came to be. but she was also married to Mel Brooks for like 30 years or something, which is just amazing. That sounds fun. Yeah, they were a great uh, Hollywood couple and they begat Max Brooks. So, I mean, that's pretty cool, too. He wrote something I saw. <laughs> the movie with uh, Sam Bell, Sam Rockwell. Um, he's an assassin, Mr. Right. Is that a completely different person? I think that's a completely different person. Max Uh, Brooks wrote Zombie Survival Guide? Yes. Hmm. Then that other person is someone else. Um, that's weird. (laughs) Let's just move on. (laughs) I I like this rabbit hole. It's it's good (sighs) and non-productive. It's very bad. Uh, also, though this movie has a just pre-breakdown era Robert Downey Jr. performance in it that I love as well. And I remember at the time when I first saw this, I was like fascinated by his character. I, I feel like this is we're going to have to talk about this at some point. So it's just going to have to happen now. Uh huh. I can't stand Robert Downey Jr. And in this movie, I hated him. <laughs> I'm sorry, but like he dragged this movie down. Oh my gosh. Badly for me. I hated him. There's nothing redeeming about him. Really? No, I, I, I didn't really enjoy this movie. I'm sorry to say, man. <laughs> like it, it, it was all conflict, but it never had resolution or moments of like nice growth or comfort it just it was just it just was like an assault of like shitty family conversations but it never gave me that relief of like the only character that really did for me was the dad henry Mm -hmm. he was like i could like find like the and his relationship with his wife and when they're dancing and stuff those were really sweet moments but then you have robert downey jr taking pictures of his naked sister in the shower and i don't know what's going on yeah, a lot of that is just bonkers. Uh, I think he's 
coked out on the set of this movie with Dylan McDermott too. Like they were both doing lines. Oh yeah. That's I wrote that he brings a, just a ball of cocaine energy. Oh, uh, one of my lines is he's super tweaky in this. Yes. Uh, so, uh, and I, to be fair, I don't care for Downey Jr. Modern either. Okay. Uh, I, I, I liked him in Tropic Thunder. But I just feel like he's playing himself too often, especially with the Tony Stark things, where he's just like, I'm a quick-witted asshole, but everyone is going to like me by the end. And I just don't latch on to it. So it's almost uh, your your refutation of him sounds similar to your Bill Murray thoughts, I believe. They don't seem like nice guys. <laughs> I think this is the problem, is uh-huh. that... I, like... As we'll see later, like Steve Martin, completely cynical asshole in the in the movie, but you still get the feeling like okay, but he has the other side. Mm-hmm. I don't think Downey Jr. has the other side where it's like he'll chill out and be nice with you. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. This movie is kind of bananas in the way that it paints a picture of a family. Like uh, it reminded me a lot of something like Moonstruck. But just the scenes where everything is overlapping and everyone's yelling at each other, like in the kitchen. It's like just that, but for 90 minutes, pretty much. There's a lot of truth in this movie. There's a lot of stuff that I did relate to with my own family. And I think the performances were really good. So I, it's really confidently made. I think for me, it's a little bare bones with the, the direction also mm-hmm. and minimal use of score. Especially when you compare it to a John Hughes movie, which is like so packed with style and music and substance. Uh, these are very contrasting movies. Yes, they're they're both uh, they both feature the Chicago and airports. <laughs> like that's true. That's that's all that they have in common. Well, and Thanksgiving, but we don't even see the Thanksgiving dinner happen in planes, trains. Whereas it's the centerpiece of this one. Um, Yeah, so I think it's a good time to start just getting into it here. Okay, right off the bat, I wanted to know what you thought about this opening. Because it's a rusted root cover of Santana, like right off the bat, blasting in your ear holes. How'd you feel about that? Uh, That's hilarious. I did not realize it's rusted root. Yes. And I have an open mic night tomorrow, and I'm... Currently preparing to play my version of um, Send Me On My Way. Nice. So I didn't even connect those two things. This intro is very big. For a movie that's not big, there's a couple like huge needle drops mm-hmm. that are kind of shocking. Um, I liked this where you see her repairing the artwork and stuff, but it goes on for a while. Yeah, the whole credits play out and seemingly everybody gets a credit right off the bat and they play like the whole damn song. It's I it felt like three and a half minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so there's certain things like that where it's like, I wish maybe Jodie Foster had done something a little bit more creative or something to show just something different, something to show a little bit more character development. We, we barely even see the character aside from the magnifying glass things that she wears. It's primarily just the canvas itself or whatever she's repairing. Yeah. And 
so we're talking about uh, Holly Hunter as Claudia. So we're introduced to Claudia. She's working, restoring a painting. She's talking about how much she loves restoring the painting. And then she gets fired from restoring the painting. This all happens within the first couple minutes. Do you know her boss's character name or his actor name? Because this guy, I recognize him for something and it was driving me crazy. Um, That's Austin Pendleton. I don't remember his uh, I have to look him up. He is so specifically connected in my brain to something. And it might be... Okay, Austin Pendleton. Known for... He's is it my who's he and my cousin Vinny. It has to be that, but I can't think of who he is. It's it's not Wall Street. Money never sleeps. <laughs> no, no. I uh, do you remember that where they advertise that movie? It's like Wall Street motorcycle chases. Yes. <laughs> so okay, uh, yeah. So she gets fired and. And then after this, she's heading home, and that's when Claire Danes t- calls her on the phone and tells her she's going to have sex. No, they're in the car. Or they're in the car, right? Because the, uh, she's dropping her off. Yeah, she drives her to the airport. Uh, Claire Danes drives Claudia to the airport. Um, and she announces at the last minute that she's going to have sex with her boyfriend. And Holly Hunter just kind of stares blankly at this news. Um, and yeah, sadly, that's almost all of Claire Danes that we get. We get like a phone call later, uh, and that's the Claire Danes energy for the movie. It's funny because she gets a pretty high billing for this, also. Yeah. Um, uh, when she's when Holly Hunter's on the plane, she has this woman sitting next to her who pulls out fried chicken and her own salt shaker. Mm-hmm. Do you have any experience like that on a? plane or public transit with just people being preposterous um i had somebody open up um like a a tupperware with i believe it was a tuna salad it had no yeah it had an odor to it um and it looked like it was um like a tuna salad but mixed with salad type of thing and yeah that was uh on a flight from Detroit to Nashville a few years ago. Not the most ideal. Is that a long flight? No, not horribly. No, it's not a bad one. That's not long enough for you to need to pack a meal. No. (laughs) Have you ever packed... Packing a meal to go on an airplane makes complete sense, but it seems like the strangest thing in the world to me. Um, I... No, I've never even... Like, I've purchased a sandwich... In the airport, in eating oh, it real God. fast. Those god-awful plastic triangles? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Those are some of the gnarliest sandwiches you could ever consume. And uh, normally, my normal thing is I pack, like, some beef jerky and cliff bars uh, for my for my journeys. Cliff and, bars are good. Yeah. And that's kind of what I do. Or turkey jerky. Whatever. <laughs> Uh, when Claudia gets picked up by her parents, her mom is like instantaneously into mom mode. Mm-hmm. And it felt this was like, oh, God. Yeah. When she says, I can see your roots, Claudia. <laughs> and she's examining her daughter's hair. It's just like, yeah, that rings true. <laughs> I, I like the fact it's over the top. But the fact that Claudia loses her coat in the very beginning 
and her mom shows up to the airport with an extra coat. Like, it makes sense only because she is such a mom and she wants to be controlling and um, be there for her daughter, like, to the nth degree. Uh, but I love the coat that she gives her. It's a, like one of those big quilt coats and it's like fuchsia. It's ridiculous. <laughs> there's a uh, there's a couple of good jackets in this in these movies. Mm hmm. I'm not going to argue with that. Uh, I liked the being stuck in traffic scene. Like, that also rang really true of uh, the dad. Like, oh, I got a root canal in that building once. And then the mom was like, uh, not unless you're the dog, because that's where the vet's it, where the vet office is. I'm like, yeah. that. that's big dad energy right there. That is... Yeah, the dad celebrating one lane change to gain one position in Miami. <laughs> yes. uh, he he has that like classic sitcom dad vibe kind of going. Yeah, uh, he's just totally aloof. Um, Who's the the actor who plays him? Charles Durning, who I might recognize from something. You know who I thought he kind of looked like. Uh, he looks like a weird. Oh my god, my I, my brain's broken. <laughs> Who's the guy that's in Rambo? Brian Brian Dennehy. Brian Dennehy. He looks yeah. like a weird Brian Dennehy. Yeah, like he he could be his um like uncle or something. He'd definitely <laughs> yeah. be the older uh, of the two. But um, Charles Durning had a great uh, stage career. I know that he did like Shakespeare back in like the 50s or 60s um and he came from that school of acting and then was just this character actor dude in a shit ton of movies like the sting and dog day afternoon he plays like a uh i think he's the lead policeman in dog day afternoon i just watched that. i still need to see the sting oh i've heard people mention it i've seen it mimicked in movies and stuff yes. a million times but never seen it yeah i don't know i think you probably would find the worth in it i think some people might uh see it and be like oh that's kind of played because it's been copied so many times um but i think you've got like a good mindset to to view it that way it's like the original oceans 11 kind of right Okay, don't that make I, me, that don't make me look up when the original Ocean's Eleven was, because well, okay, <laughs> I don't. All right, yes, moving on, which is funny because I didn't even. I was thinking Clooney and Brad Pitt. I did, yes. I've never even seen or thought of the original. Was that yes. a Rat Pack movie? Yes, it was. I've never seen a single Rat Pack thing. Really? I don't know. Like, no, no, I know Dean Martin, no Sinatra detective films <laughs> or anything. The only thing I know is that. Carl Pilkington's mom was trying to write like a quiz question for a, a game once, and it was supposed to be like relative where you could figure it out from the clues in the title what mm -hmm. who the artist is. And so her clue was this man liked his wine. <laughs> Dean Martin. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, famous wine drinker, Dean Martin. Dean Martin. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um so Henry, the dad. Uh, plays the organ, which is awesome, but also 
the organ sucks. Yes. Outside of a baseball stadium, the organ is a shitty instrument. I mean, it's got its place in a church. I've never liked pipe organ music. And I think it's more just they refuse to play anything that sounds good with like <laughs> modern music keys. Because everything's still in that like atonal classic. Uh, it's just drone. I, pipe organ music could be great if they let me play it. <laughs> just make giant walls of like pipe sounds as yes. everyone gets into like a mystical haze. That's my kind of church. So two things. First of all, uh, this organ always makes me think of the Simpsons joke um, where Bart hands out the sheet music at church. Um, and it's in, in the, in the God, uh, Vita baby or whatever. Yeah. yeah. In the God of Vita, but it's in the garden of Eden by I Ron butterfly, which cracks me up. Uh, and it's a 17 minute song and the organist passes out at the end of it. And it's great. Uh, but the type of organ music you're talking about takes me right back to my first like regular full-time job that I had. Um, I worked at a gas station and I worked the early shift. It was like a truck stop gas station. I worked the early shift on Sundays and uh, the office was always locked and the radio was in the office and the same station they listened to Saturday night in the middle of the night switched over to Christian broadcasting. So they would play Baroque organ music all morning long for like the first three hours of my shift. And then it would go into um, uh, like Prairie Home Companion and stuff like that, which I was fine with, like the talk radio NPR kind of stuff I was okay with. But that three hours every weekend, it nearly killed me. It was that it's the worst. That sounds miserable. Yeah. Just five o'clock on a Sunday morning when you're 16 years old or 15 years old working at a gas station and surly truckers are coming in and there's organ music blaring through the loudspeakers and oh it just sucked so much i worked at a bakery that had we listened to the same radio station every day called bob radio station and it essentially was just a playlist with a shuffle mm -hmm. and then every four songs it would play an eight second buffer and that was it no actual dj and so the playlist must have been i don't know 200 songs 150 mm -hmm. basically and about once a month they might add a few or take a few off so just listening to the same goddamn top 100 songs and so many bad pop songs that they but then every once in a while they'd play something by weezer or blink 182 or something that i was into but i've listened to so many bad top 100 pop songs that make me just hate top 40 hate yeah. it hate it that's and i i I, God, I don't know how you do your job man <laughs> the nice your nice thing your, is your, your job they make you listen to this <laughs> this some of this shit man i only have to listen in short bursts though it's not like i'm listening all day long it's like i have to listen long enough to to review something or to say yes or no to it so so are there scouts who are just listening to everything trying to pick stuff up Oh, there's people that I work with who like are out at the clubs in Nashville um, doing singer songwriter nights and all that kind of stuff, trying to find the next big thing. 
Mm. Yeah. That sounds like an easy way to become an alcoholic. (laughs) You want to open mic nights every single night. Oh, yeah. And I don't know about anywhere else in the world because I've been here my whole adult life. But um, there are showcases like every night, not just I mean, down on Broadway, there's bands like six hours a night every night um, at maybe a dozen bars. And yeah, San Francisco had a couple of venues with shows, but nothing like that. Oh, and several of them have their windows open. So when you're walking down the street, it's just assaulting you. Uh, <laughs> some of the venues have different bands on different levels that will be going at the same time. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That can't be good. No, it's horrendous. It is the worst <laughs> environment if you actually like music and want to sit and listen to one person do a song. It's dreadful. Wow. I can't imagine a double venue like that. Yeah. It's, it's like when you're sitting in a theater watching some contemplative movie like The Lighthouse or mm-hmm. something, and then next door to you is Fast and the Furious 8. Right. So you're just... Where are we in this thing? This I made a note that for me, I think because this locks into like the end of my high school, beginning of college era, this movie is super cozy. There's absolutely no stakes, like like you were saying earlier. But I think of it as a feature more than a bug. That like nobody changes, nothing happens in this movie. It's well, just I, as far as realism goes, it makes sense because how often do we go through completely cathartic moments that lead us to a moment of realization and personal change? Yes, not that often, and especially not over a Thanksgiving dinner with our family. So I get that it's not realistic and it's not what the movie wants to give me, but it's still what I want. Right. Uh, When her mom finds out that she's fired and kind of yells at her, uh, she says the, like she has a mantra and she says, float, just float. uh That's a moment where it's like, God, when you get that second alone from your family and you just take a deep breath, it's just like, Two more days, <laughs> two more days, two more days. I think it also really captures that you can have both sides almost in the same moment with your family where you are like, you're kind of enjoying yourself, but it's because you're falling back into a certain role uh, of like being the child or being the cousin or whatever it is. Um, and it's comfortable and enjoyable for a minute, but then it's also super stressful. And I think Holly Hunter really kind of plays that line very well in this movie. The push and pull of family is constantly confusing because there's love there, but that love always comes with some kind of baggage or some kind of terms attached to it. It feels like, or just a lot of history. And yes, I think she does a great job of both trying to maintain her independence as her dad says later when she she wasn't holding his hand at the airport you know she was standing there by herself so brave and whatever but she also wants to be in that fold of the family especially at this time when her life is in complete upheaval and i also had a note here for me 
I like seeing Robert Downey Jr. I like his manic energy. Um, but also, does he remind you of Roman in succession? Yes. Okay. And Roman is borderline a character that's like so much of a character that I can't even conceive him as a person on that show. I it, it, it I don't know. Culkin is like pushing it just on that edge where it's like, dude, this is too much smarmy eye rolling. You gotta be serious for 10 seconds in this show, please. Yes. The, um, also, did you see him on SNL a couple weeks ago? Uh, no, I haven't watched, I haven't watched SNL in a long time. Okay. Um, his, uh, this, the style that he brings to that is very Roman. It is <laughs> like a little upsetting that it was hard to separate him a little bit. Was he in um, Scott Pilgrim, or was that the other Culkin? There's three Culkins, right? Yes, that was uh, Kieran. Kieran? Yes. Or, in, or Rory, I think. Is that right? Macaulay, Rory, and uh, Kieran? Yes. Is, they're, like, becoming the Baldwins. Wasn't that a reality show? Becoming. That might have been. <laughs> becoming. If it's not, we should make it. It is Kieran in uh, Scott Pilgrim. He is. I think. I think that's just what he does. Yes, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I love when the parents dance to Tom Jones. That was just a beautiful little moment in something. It was like, oh, I never saw that any kind of love expression like that growing up. I wonder how that would have <laughs> affected me. As a person, had I seen my parents do that every once in a while or something? Um, my parents would do things like make out in the middle of the mall uh, to embarrass oh. me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I don't know which is worse. Yeah. <laughs> We're both traumatized. Yes. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. In front of a girl I was trying to ask out, too. Oh, my God. It was horrendous. Oh. I was also, when the dad is playing the organ, mm -hmm. I was getting real your dad vibes from it. <laughs> Just the guy commanding the room playing music. Yes. Uh, I do like, I mean, it's a stupid joke. Uh, and it's one of the only jokes like this in the movie. But Anne Bancroft, when uh, they're, they're kissing on each other the mother and father kissing on each other. And she says, has daddy shown you his organ? He can't keep his hands off it. And then it's a hard cut to him playing the organ. <laughs> I'm like, it's such a stupid juvenile penis joke, but it, it made me smile. You know, it's another juvenile penis joke. Uh, the mom smokes really, really long cigarettes. Yes. Those are like some of the longest cigarettes I've ever <laughs> seen. <laughs> I uh, but Henry, it disgusts me when he goes to get the pumpkin pie and he's able to like lift the edge where it's like the sealed edge of the pumpkin pie and get yes. underneath to like the meat. Something about lifting the edge of that pie grossed me out. Yeah, it did not make the pie look appetizing. Mm -mm. Uh, and pumpkin pie is struggling to be appetizing to begin with. Uh, 
both of these movies kind of grossed me out in different in different times. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Uh, yeah. So yeah, like, like you said before, when Downey Jr. comes into the kitchen next, and he's dancing with his mom and his sister, full on tweaker, mm-hmm. full on tweaker energy. Um, the mom, this family has no boundaries because uh, the daughters. Uh, Claudia's in the shower and the mom's sitting on the toilet next yes, to her smoking in is the mom using the toilet or just kind of hanging out having a cigarette I think she's hanging out having a cigarette next to her mi- middle-aged so. naked daughter and then she leaves the door open and then Downey Jr. comes in and takes a photo with a Polaroid this family is bizarre <laughs> yeah uh but he does bring along with him um, Dylan McDermott, who plays Leo Fish. Um, what a name for a character. Yeah. I, and Leo. the way people repeat it, I think it's supposed to be a joke. Like, what's, what's the joke? I don't think there is a joke there. I think, but it has the form and cadence of a joke. <laughs> I know, but it's not funny. No. <laughs> Leo Fish, and they just keep saying Leo Fish, uh, and they always refer to him by his whole by his full name. Uh, did you buy the the two of them are possibly together angle? They they come in with such insane energy in this movie that I had no idea what the fuck was going on. I thought they were I thought they were brothers uh-huh. until it was then insinuated that they were lovers. I was like, well, these guys have much more of like roughhousing brother energy than gay lover energy, but okay, I, I don't know. They were both it seemed like they were both at the start of this movie dialing into like the exact same character. Mm-hmm. And McDermott kind of breaks off um as we see when she gets kicked out of the car later and kind of shows that, okay, maybe this guy is a little bit more centered and balanced than Tommy. Yeah. But I don't know. I know. I don't think I really bought them as a couple. Yeah. Uh, I didn't either. And so there is a whole running uh, storyline of something happened with Tommy and his boyfriend, uh, Jack, Jack. And, uh, Claudia doesn't know what it was that happened. Um, and you're led to believe that it was some terrible breakup. Um, and Claudia keeps trying to pick at Tommy to find out what it is. Uh, and people keep making insinuating comments about it throughout the movie. Um, so it seems with Tommy, it seems his family knows he's openly gay mm-hmm. throughout this whole thing. But if you want to just talk about kind of his story with Jack right now, we could do that. Okay, yeah. Is it is the big secret that they got married and he wore a dress? Like that's the being gay is not the shameful part; it's the cross dressing part. He didn't wear a dress because he didn't. But no. I, this was what kind of confused me. Yes, I think that um, his mom seems like kind of ambivalent about it. His dad seems supportive. Um, his sister, Joanna, is shitty. Uh, Joanna and Walter, played by Steve Gutenberg. Um, they <laughs> Gutenberg are, is such a dickhead yes, in this movie. <laughs> they are total uh, MAGA 
or proto MAGA couple in this movie. I feel like oh, they're such just like yuppie assholes. But yes, elevated. Yep, but he's like straight straight from Manhattan, but worse somehow. <laughs> but Steve Gutenberg is talking about like things used to be better and people used to have common sense, and we need to get back to that at one point. Um, but they both seem to look down on Tommy for his lifestyle and. Joanna at one point says, um, we, we know people in Boston. We have friends in Boston. Don't you ever think about anybody else? Like, as if Tommy's not supposed to live his life, there's no place safe for him to live his life because his sister might have a friend there and she might be embarrassed by the fact that he's gay, which is just ridiculous. At Gutenberg. At one point, he's talking about rock-solid loan fundamentals. We need to get back. It's like, at, at, but the thing is, again, accurate, because, fuck, the amount of times that political or economic talk would break out at Thanksgiving, to, or an argument, a political debate or something. My family's gotten better about not allowing that. It was more like when my my dad was a button pusher, and my <laughs> grandma would get involved. It just... But, yeah, that's just, <laughs> he's so fixated on just, like, numbers and being an asshole. It's great. His wife is, I, I don't, we'll get to her later, but I don't understand one major thing that she chooses to do or not do. Okay. She never takes a shower. She's the one that gets the turkey dropped all over her head. In yes. her dress, she never takes a shower. She's this whole movie. They like wipe the turkey grease off her hair, mm-hmm. but she chooses to just live with it. I think that she is, uh, and I've had uh, family members like this. She is the martyr in waiting. Like she cannot wait to tell you how wronged she's been by something you've done that may or may not have had anything to do with her, but she's ready to take on that role. And I think sitting with that grease is her saying like, look how poorly you all treat me. She's walking around in a dress covered in baking soda. Yes. (laughs) So I think, I think you're right. I, that is a complete martyr symptom, but it's just preposterous to me because just looking at her with like, just imagining being covered in turkey grease and then just be like, okay, let's do the dishes. Yes. Clean up. Yeah. And her sister offers to let her wear uh, one of her dresses and she turns her down in like a really shitty way. Like she turns it into being judgy about the dress rather than, Hey, you might be more comfortable not covered in grease. You massive idiot. After this, uh, we're going to go pick up Aunt Gladdy, right? Yes. So we got Tommy and uh, McDermott and Claudia in the car. <laughs> and um, they run in. This is where, oh God, Downey Jr. is so annoying. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> He's so annoying in this. And then he kicks her out of the car and she runs into the prom queen whose coat is endangered, but it wasn't endangered when she bought it. <laughs> I thought that was a funny little joke. Yes. Um. And this is where we get to see um, McDermott's character kind of have the emotional turn, which is one of the few we get in this movie. Yeah, and it's really, it is a turn. It's totally binary. Like, 
he goes from kind of being a, a a provoker to being sympathetic because he's crushing on Claudia. Like that's his only defining characteristic is that he's kind of got puppy eyes for her. This this dude's smooth. Yes. In a way that is concerning. <laughs> Don't trust Dylan McDermott's eyes. Also, just Dylan McDermott, he was great in season one of American Horror Story, and I don't recall him from anything else. I know he's been in other things, and maybe I've liked him in some others, but he's one of those actors that's just kind of a ghost for me. Well, and he, for me, always gets uh, confused with Dermot Mulroney. Who, I know that name. Yes. Who is another um, handsome man who kind of fulfills the same spot in movies. Dermot what? Oh, Ridley? Mulrooney. Mulrooney. All right, let me look it up. Yeah. Uh, I also get him kind of mixed up. Whoa, the first thing. (laughs) If you Google Dermot Mulrooney, the first image that showed up is a comparison of him to... To D- Dermot, oh god damn it, to Dylan McDermott. <laughs> Dermot Mulrooney looks just like Dylan McDermott. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, he also kind of, I get him mixed up with Kyle whatever from Friday Night Lights. Oh, Kyle Chandler. Everybody's mm. dead. Mm-hmm. See, I know Kyle Chandler specifically because of the movie Super 8. That's where he sticks out and he has, like, I'm like, oh yeah, he's the Super 8 guy. I remember... Not liking Super 8 one bit. Uh-huh, I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> I I watched it, like, two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. Probably three years ago. So it was well past its point of relevancy. Yeah. And we're so far into the Strangers Things era now that, like, I think I'm just done with 12-year-olds going on missions. Oh, okay. Dylan McDermott, did you see the Clove Hitch Killer? I have not. It's on my list because Stephen King tweeted about it not long ago. I don't get it. Okay. Uh, I see a lot of our friends giving it high reviews and stuff. It seems like a young adult serial killer book to me. Like a serial killer movie, but written as like fantasy teenagers. I, I, I wasn't into it. But I'm glad other people were. So, and people seem to really like him in that. Huh. Yeah. Uh, we get to Aunt Gladdy's house, and Aunt Gladdy has 210 houseplants. I thought of you. <laughs> I, did. I immediately started counting her. I was like, I have like 15. I'm okay. <laughs> and a lot of those are like clones that are like in propagation stage and stuff. So, I'm not there yet. But I- she did have one spider plant that had like a million spider plant babies, Uh which are, they drop down these vines and then basically clone themselves from a hanging vine. Really, really cool plants. Uh, But her place, the little bit of it that we see, I was like, I dig her house. (laughs) Like, it's covered in plants. It looks very homey and cozy in there. Uh, And I liked that about it. it. It did. I feel like there's also a closet that's stacked eight feet high with newspapers that go back 35 years. Oh, but, especially given what we learn about her later. Uh, I think that's definitely oh, a possibility. Man. Yeah. <laughs> Aunt Gladdy. 
interesting, unique lady. Uh, I, uh, I like the gag where she, she gives uh, Claudia a lamp, even though it's totally impractical. Uh, and the guys are outside changing a light bulb. And then later she gives uh, Leo Fish another lamp. And he says, you can't have it. This one's mine. I just thought that was a cute running joke. <laughs> when they're... There's really weird comedy moments when Downey Jr.'s on McDermott's shoulders and they're mm-hmm. trying to change this light. They're like complete stewed <laughs> level of like yes. pratfall physical comedy. <laughs> like Again, just like how tweaked out were these guys because they're just moving so fast and everything's so big and they're just mm-hmm. they're like vibrating on screen like guys deep breath your hearts are about to explode and downey jr takes a header off of dylan mcdermott's shoulders uh at the end of that <laughs> scene and like lands on some lawn furniture kind of or porch furniture i guess it is uh but i was like yeah that's cocaine energy right there <laughs> got no fear so when they're going to pick up Gladi, do you run in to, have you run into high school people every now and then? Because that's such like a movie thing of you run into the old prom queen or whatever. And I haven't seen someone from high school in like 20 years. No. Um, one time I ran into uh, a girl that I know when I was back there, but I had been, I moved back to Indiana and lived there for about a year. Um, and even in that whole year, I ran into somebody one time. <laughs> so I, I don't even know if any of my friends are still down in San Diego. Um, yeah, it's just, it would be so strange to see someone now. Yeah. I don't even know if I would recognize anyone from high school. No. Uh, the weird thing is now I will frequently get recognized, uh, places because my wife has a very large social circle. Mm, and I thought you were going to say people know your face from listening to the podcast. <laughs> God, I wish. <laughs> uh, and she posts pictures of me a lot of times. And so I'll have people like come up to me randomly and be like, you're Josh. And I'm like, yep. And they're like, oh, yeah, I, I did. You're Josh. Yep. You've been served. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, never answer yes to that question come on a guy like two weeks ago at the soccer game um in the bathrooms apparently recognized me and thankfully didn't come up to me did, then. I, I was gonna say did he approach you in the bathroom no but he texted elizabeth and was like hey did you guys come to the soccer game today uh and because i think i saw josh and I'm like, I would have been freaked out because I had no idea who this guy was. A guy stopped me in a Walgreens parking lot one time because he recognized me from, I think, our cast photo when we did sketch comedy. Um, and Who are these photographic memory people? I don't know, because we have talked about having face blindness. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, I, I can't even picture Brian Dennehy right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I spent way more time looking at Brian Dennehy than I have most people. <laughs> um, Aunt Gladdy has a Fruit Loop necklace. Did you know Fruit Loops are all the same flavor, regardless um, of color? Don't. That's, Isn't that sad? That's really sad. I don't like that. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I love that the dad is playing the Halls of Tripoli, which is the 
United States Marine Corps song uh-huh. as they get back to the house, which is just a funny little random-esque moment. <laughs> um, Claudia's, Claudia and Tommy's sister, Joanna, and Walter show up at this point, and they they hate Tommy. Walter especially hates Tommy, um, which you can sympathize with. But <laughs> I really like the fact <laughs> not that I love Gutenberg, though. <laughs> I like the fact that uh, seemingly one of their kids likes him, uh, and the other one is terrified by him. And Tommy acts like a total asshole and like jumps on their car and paws at the windows like the Tyrannosaurus uh, in Jurassic Park. Yes, because he's tweaked out lunatic. He he is. It's like if you gave a child meth. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a good way to put it. It's like it reminds me of when I was thirteen years old and drank my first Red Bull. Uh huh. And I was just like tweaking at school, <laughs> waiting for my mom to pick me up. Just like eyes wide, climbing a tree or something. <laughs> oh God. Okay. So have you ever? Um, I often have this experience. I really used to have it, but have you ever come out of a movie and been like so affected by the movie, like, like if you see a a, a Fast and Furious, and then suddenly you want to like fucking just drive, like you're like I'm gonna drive like a badass now. Or when I saw the Matrix, I was like I'm gonna run up these walls. I have I have got big energy right now, and I'm gonna expend it all. I specifically remember watching. One or two of the Bloodsport movies and a Mortal Kombat, <laughs> yes. like all in the all around the same day as a kid, and just be like, I could get into a fight right now. I could, I, I could <laughs> yes. fight someone. Yep. ten years old, but I could, I could kick someone's ass. Yeah, I think. Uh, have you have you seen the Bloodsports after Van Damme? Because I've never seen the Van Damme one. I've only no. seen the sequels. I have only seen the first. Oh, one. Josh, there's one. It's either the second or the third one. Uh, Alex Cardo, our protagonist, is taught how to do like a force punch where like you stop half an inch from someone, but your chi is so strong that it just like crushes people. Uh And so at the end, he's fighting this guy called the demon and the demon has like veneers and he just has like perfect teeth. And he's just like this ripped dude from Thailand. And Alex Cardo is getting his ass kicked. And then he sees his teacher and he's like down on the mat and he's all bloody and his teacher is hitting the mat. And you see like the reverberation in the water of the bucket. And he's like, oh, the force the force and then the force flows through him and he remembers his chi and he gets up and he ah! and then he starts like crushing this guy with force punches it's a really weird way to end a blood sport movie um <laughs> <laughs> uh, just last night i got to attend the virtual screening um preview screening for the new holly berry movie called bruised it's her directorial debut uh, as well as a starring role for her and uh, can I can I guess? Yes. Halle Berry found success because people liked her part in John Wick two or three, and so now she's trying to basically make herself into a John Wick character, or she's no. making a movie based on her character. Essentially, same vibe. No, um, it is much more in the vein of um, uh, what was it? The Fighter. Uh, was that the one that came out a few years ago? Warrior? Oh, no, the Christian Bale one that I didn't see? Yes. The boxing one? Yes. 
I didn't see Except it. Except she's a mixed, mixed martial artist who mm. at the very beginning um, bails out of a title fight. She has a panic attack in the middle of a title fight. <laughs> yeah, she's like, I'm 53 years old. What the <laughs> fuck am I doing <laughs> <Yes>. fighting <laughs> in a cage? And um, then she gets back into the fight game. And it's a total um, just it's like Rocky, but with a woman type movie. And how are the montages? The okay, there's one towards the end that feels really perfunctory that they were just like, we have to do a montage running by the water and doing all this stuff. Yeah, uh, I really liked the fight scenes in it, they were really pretty exciting. Uh, and the, the lack of a montage really hurts it for me, though. <laughs> you know, I, was, I, I can't remember who I was watching recently, but just talked about the reason montages are so effective because it just bombards us with sensory input of mm-hmm. different scenes, different locations, music, everything to the point where of course it works because our brain is never stimulated like that in real life. Oh, wow. And I love it because it's like, yeah, that's exactly why I love a montage. Cause it's like, you just take the best couple seconds from like 12 scenes mm-hmm. and just show me like the best little bits of everything. So I like, Thinking of the Rocky Four training montage against yes. Drago, basically, is what I'm imagining. But that's just peak montage. And you showed me that, I didn't finish it, but that recent video with Stallone mm-hmm. breaking down his um, his remaster or his re-edit of Rocky 2? No, it was 4. It was 4. Oh, yeah. oh it was 4 because he was doing the Drago thing. Yep. And that was fascinating, man. His insight into that movie and just movie making in general um it's pretty fucking in, um incredible yeah i think uh, stallone is a guy that i for years did not give nearly enough credit and then maybe four or five years ago um i went back and watched all the rockies like i marathoned them and i was like holy shit this guy first of all is is super charismatic like He's just got a charm to him that you're really like, okay, I like this dude. Uh, but then to hear him on some of the behind the scenes stuff and commentaries and the actual thought he put into these things and wrote and directed, it's just like, okay, I, you know, he's a, he plays a meathead, but he's a smart meathead. You didn't watch Rocky five. Did you? Oh yeah. 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 Oh no. <laughs> I remember turning that one on as a kid, like, oh, there's another Rocky movie? Sweet. And then it's about Tommy Gunn. Yeah. Tommy Gunn sucks. Yep. Tommy Gunn is a bummer. (laughs) And then it ends in just like a a street fight (laughs) in a parking lot between Rocky and Tommy Gunn. Like, what (laughs) the fuck is this? Yeah. They they come I thought, but then the later one, Balboa, the one that came out like oh five or whatever. That was I thought that was really good actually. Yeah, I like Balboa, Balboa and I like Creed. I haven't seen Creed two or whatever. I have not either. Um, but the I did love the soundtrack for Rocky Five. Uh, I remember someone played that at the gym um, when I when it when it came out, and I would go to the gym. I was in Taekwondo at the time, and they had like a weightlifting room next to it, and somebody was playing it, and I was like, "This is good pumping music." <laughs> uh, getting back to thanksgiving 
what's your whatever like your favorite Thanksgiving dishes? Uh, so growing up, my grandma would make oyster stuffing. What? <laughs> yes. In Indiana? Yes. Those beautiful fresh cut Indiana oysters? Yep, fresh cut from the can. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What's oyster stuffing? It's bread stuffing with oysters? Yeah, basically. Is that good? It's very good. It's very distinctive because the oyster flavor goes throughout everything. And um, she would make it special for me because my parents don't eat onions. Mostly my dad doesn't eat onions. And so therefore my mom has like stopped eating onions. Why? I don't know. And no matter how many times I tell him that different onions taste different. Like, like a sweet onion versus a white onion versus a scallion are all different flavors. Uh, and they're different when they're cooked. He's like, no, no onions. He even learned how to say no onions in Spanish so that he can get his point across at Mexican restaurants when he orders his shrimp fajitas. But now I wish I knew the name for onions. Onions are the best. I have a friend who claims he's allergic to onions. Mm-hmm. I don't believe it. I think he's just a baby and pretends he has a stomach ache if he has like a speck of onions in his food. Uh-huh. Uh so the the oyster stuffing, the other thing um and this is just a food that's available around Thanksgiving time uh is do you have Publix grocery stores out there? No, I know of them and people love them, but we okay. do not have them here. So Publix has a great deli section and they do uh sub sandwiches and they make a thanksgiving sandwich that has like turkey breast um but the the killer part of it is the cranberry relish they put on top and then i get them to put um horseradish on as well so you get some some sweet and tangy and then you get like a little bit of heat with it uh with like kind of a, a munster cheese i believe that that's a that's a good meal right there that sounds really good because i always found turkey to actually be like the blandest part of thanksgiving oh yeah um it was it turkey is always the thing that i looked forward to least and so now i'm just uh i don't eat turkey so it's just bread stuffing mashed potatoes pie maybe a little bit of green bean casserole but i'm mainly in that for the french's onions yes that are on top of it but last year with COVID, I stayed home by myself, and it was just for about four days straight, every single meal was mashed potatoes and bread stuffing, because I had to get through it, and I made way too much for myself. <laughs> by by December 1st, I was just like, no more. <laughs> my my hand was trembling as I took the last bite of mashed potatoes. <laughs> um, so... Uh, hen- yeah, go ahead. I was, I was going to bring it back. I was going to ask. I was going to keep it a, a feel. <laughs> keep it going. Because I've got, um, <laughs> I, I just placed my order. We're actually not cooking. We're doing a ham uh, this year, I believe. But we're also ordering turkey and uh, sides from a local barbecue place, Martin's Barbecue Joint. Um, so we're getting smoked turkey. And I don't think it's going to be popular with everybody, so we're doing a ham as well as kind of a backup. Uh, That's a good idea. Have you had like a smoked turkey or a deep fried turkey? No, 
I the whole smoking thing in Revolution. Um, I haven't eaten meat in like fifteen years. So oh, okay. that that so was all post. post. Um, and same with the deep frying. I remember scoffing when the idea of deep frying first came out, primarily because you'd hear horror stories of people who wouldn't defrost their birds. Yes, yeah, and then would light their houses on fire and seeing those safety demonstration videos of frozen turkeys being dropped into hot oil <laughs> is petrifying i know it's safe to do but still terrifying uh the i learned how to deep fry a turkey from alton brown and he has a very rigorous safety system involved with it so i like alton brown a lot yeah um so at the at the thanksgiving dinner table Henry's prayer is something, the dad is something like, our traditions mean a lot, even if they don't really make sense, but our traditions are also dying. Thousand-year-old trees are dying, and that shouldn't be happening. It was like, wow. And I think this is where this movie really starts to confront the idea of the past and Mm -hmm. of aging, especially at this dinner scene as we get with the ant story and everything. This is where it really start to like sink into, like you said before, there's so much baggage when you're sitting at the same dinner table, or maybe not the same one, but you're sitting with your family, and all of a sudden you're flashing back to being a kid, and you're flashing back to hanging with your parents, your sisters, or whatever, and you know, being around family stirs up a lot of old memories. Yeah. Um, so personally, it's very strange for me, because we have been uh kind of excommunicated from most of my extended family um either you know on one side or the other um there's like some kind of bad feelings and it's all been through my parents i'm an only child and my whole connection with my families was through them um and now my parents uh have like their adopted family basically where they have their friend group that they hang out with all the time. And my mom has kind of taken on um, uh, another family that she, I mean, she calls the the kids, her grandkids and spends a lot of time with them, spends a lot of holidays with them. Um, That's like her bonus family. Um, And she's kind of their grandmother since they are recent uh, immigrants and their grandmother's out of the country. So she kind of takes that role on for them. Um, But something like this, especially, it it hits me because I probably won't have any more chances to like spend time like that with my actual family around a dinner table anymore. Yeah. Well, but you've started your own. Yes. So I, I, yeah. And, and I that franchise so that it, shit. <laughs> is it your parents? Is it their relationship with their siblings or was it your parents relationship with your grandparents? Um, it's siblings and grandparents. So it, it's kind of all the way around. I have one surviving grandmother, um, who lived with my parents for several years, but they had a falling out, uh, when they moved out, um, and kind of the rest of the family sided with her. And then my dad just doesn't talk to his siblings anymore. Um, how long has this hatchet been unburied? Oh, literally on my dad's side, it's been like, like half my life, probably. 
Wow. Yeah. It's so you did grow up with your family. Like yes. through your through your teenage years, you had big big Thanksgivings and stuff. Oh yeah. And we we hosted them at our house and we would have both sides of the family come over. Um and when I was younger, we lived with my grandparents uh on my dad's side uh when my parents were first getting their footing when I was like in kindergarten, first and second grade. Um, kind of through that era before we had our own house. And so my cousins were over all the time. Like we had kind of this, I was the only, only child. Everybody else had three and four kids and they would bring them over all the time. Uh, very open door policy. Um, and my grandfather would have people from the neighborhood come in and people would sit around playing music and like banjos and upright basses and stuff. And that was like a very family friendly environment. How do you feel about your grandparents and aunts and uncles? Like it's what it's honestly kind of weird. The, my closest aunt is only a few years older than me. So she was always kind of like my big sister growing up. Um, she was my mom's sister and she seemingly when she got with her husband kind of, um, went through a radical shift in perspective. Um, not to say that we can't sit down and have a civil meal together, but um, it was definitely not the same woman I grew up with um, who would go to San Francisco all the time and had a gay best friend. And like her best friend, Roman was the first gay, gay man that I met because um, I grew up in Indiana. Um, <laughs> and so she exposed me to a lot of like, grown up stuff in the world. And now she's kind of reverted to a little bit of, um, a trumpet. <laughs> if I yeah. kind of thing. Um, but my dad's family, especially my grandfather, I was very close to my grandfather. And actually I have this necklace that you can see it's a bottle opener. Uh, it is from the movie. Cool hand. Luke. That's funny thing to carry around for a man who doesn't drink. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but I have worn this since uh, my grandfather passed away. Uh, oh, that's cool. When I was 15 years old. Well, I mean, I'm sorry that they're that void now. Because that, that must have been so hard when you were 20 or, or whenever that that breakup happened. It was weird because I definitely expected like when I started my own family that we would be part of the rest of the extended family. And, you know, of course my, my cousins have kids now and, uh, they've never met my children and, you know, my girls are 18 and 16 at this point. So it's, it's kind of surreal. I'm not at all what I expected. That that's a real bummer. Um, I have, I have such a small extended family that I just feel like, there's not as much chance for drama. My mom's an, my mom's an only child and my dad had one brother. Mm -hmm. And so I have two cousins and they each have wives and kids now, but still it's always been very small. Yeah. We would but, have, you know, with my big... family, we would see my family. They were, we were from San Diego and they were up only about an hour and a half away, two hours away near Pasadena, but still we'd see them usually once to twice a year, either at Thanksgiving or Christmas. And it's fun to seeing them, but we, uh, they are born again. 
and my family parties pretty hard. <laughs> so <laughs> I think like I think most people in my family are Christian, uh, except for me. But not Christian like that. <laughs> right. <know? laughs> so after this is her aunt Maddie. Is it Maddie? Gladdy? Uh, Gladys. Gladdy. Yeah. Gladdy. Uh, this is where she starts describing, remembering the exact moment, the time of date, and everything that she first saw Henry, the way he looked, that little mustache that he had. It's like, holy shit, this is awkward. <laughs> this, this woman is clearly in complete love. And then we find out that he kissed her on a, a Christmas Eve at some point. It's both sad and really sweet that Gladys has been carrying this around her whole life uh, and chooses to reveal it. But kind of like you said, there's no big revelation or catharsis that comes from it. Gladys pours her heart out and even says she's glad that this dear sweet man, Henry married her sister because he gave her sister the life that she always wanted. It's a hell of a thing. She says, I'm like, I was given one moment of magic, and I know that my sister had that her whole life, and it's like she was carrying this cross on behalf of her sister. Like, I'm going to sacrifice this love so my sister can have it, and it's it's really, really interesting, but after this scene, it gets left behind. Yeah, it's, uh, there's a grace note of it at the end when they're kind of doing the flashbacks, but that's it. Like, Nobody deals with it in the timeline of this movie, uh, and it just sort of gets buried underneath all of the other stuff that comes up. Well, understandably, because did you see how Robert Downey Jr. is carving that turkey? <laughs> he doesn't know how to carve a turkey. I, what the fuck is he doing? He doesn't He's know how like... to carve a turkey. He's very bad at it. He's yes, trying to stab but... it. It's just like Michael Myers in it. Yeah. Which this this leads to them, him launching the turkey off the plate. Onto that one fancy lady's lap, and then they decide to lift the turkey off her lap and then lift it over, over her, her head. head. And apparently, they filled this turkey inside with juice. Or so- this is the wettest turkey I've ever <laughs> seen. Just dripping grease all over her. There, there were. Are they giblets or giblets? Giblets. Okay, we'll go with giblets. All the giblets <laughs> were cooked inside this turkey. The the bag of stuff that you're supposed to take out and make into stew or whatever they took out opened and put back in and then dumped it on uh, joanna it's like the grossest looking turkey i've ever seen and oh we didn't mention the fact that joanna and walter brought their own turkey and some of oh, the two dishes. turkey yeah uh we've got two competing turkeys because theirs is the yuppie turkey that was like freshly uh, raised what? or whatever oh i think it was a modern family episode where they have like two or three turkeys because they're all horrible people who lie to each other and can never once be honest. That mm-hmm. was the entire plot of Modern Family was that this family, instead of having a two minute conversation, they're all going to backstab each other for 22 minutes before they come to the realization that, oh, we all love each other. Yeah. So there's an episode where there's two or three turkeys floating around. I went down with that ship. If I sound bitter about Modern Family, it's because <laughs> I went down with the ship and that ship took a long time to sink. I have only ever seen a couple episodes, and I think I was fine with that. 
it was good in the first season until I was like, wait, I swear this show is more homophobic and racist than any other show, yet this show is trying to pretend that it's progressive. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Well, they have an Asian daughter. The gay couple adopts an Asian daughter. Yeah. And there is a lot of, like, Asians are good at math jokes and shit like that. Ooh. Yes. I know. It was confusing to me. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, oops, dad does a racism in this movie. When he, Did he? An- I, I missed it. When he answers the phone, uh, he does the thing where you swap the R's and the L's in your speech and sound uh, like a... Uh, a fake uh, yeah. Chinese man. Yes. If we end up talking about a Christmas story, oh baby, <laughs> that last scene. Yes. <laughs> there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. <sighs> oh. Uh, oh. Okay. After. Oh, again. This is so we get the the scene with Tommy and his dad. Kind of says, "Hey, I, I support you." I don't remember exactly what his dad says about him being married, but his dad came across supportive. Yes, his, his dad answers the phone when Jack calls um, and then tells Jack, he says, you're a good kid. Um, and then kind of ruffles uh, Tommy's hair. And he's like, you know, you could have found, found a better partner, you know, kind of busting his chops and then does like, a, I love you, kid, and then gives the phone to Tommy. And it's the one time that Robert Downey Jr. settles down in the whole movie. And when he does, like, please, I can buy you this this yes stop stop doing cocaine please uh, this is another scene that concerned me claudia's smoking a cigarette and tommy's like sitting on a chair and claudia sits down next to her brother then puts her legs over his lap and then is like leaning on his shoulder and then at one point they look longfully in each other's eyes i'm like your brother and sister what <laughs> the fuck are you guys doing i mean i know that my family's weird and I, I, I don't, I hug my sisters like once or twice a year and we don't say I love you that often. And I don't know, I have weird emotional hangups about like physical signs of affection and things, but still this seems weird to me. Yeah, there's, and it really doesn't help the fact that um, for starters, they're both wearing similar uh, fabrics, right? Like Robert Downey Jr. is wearing a, like a velvet um, looking jacket it's like a, a suit jacket and she's got a like a velvet dress on that and i hate to say it but i'm going to because this is the late night show and you know it's after hours um the, that she looks super sexy in her thanksgiving garb wait it's, it's 10 a.m what are you talking about this what the late night <laughs> <laughs> this isn't like that time i was drinking when we were or two times three times i've i've been drinking three recordings in each one, I was like, oh, that's my worst performance. <laughs> uh, Tommy, this this is where I think Downey Jr. probably has his best acting scene with his interaction with his mom, mm-hmm. where he kind of, they confront the distance between them. And he says something like, I, I like you. Like, basically, he's trying to tell his mom that he loves her, but the only way he can think is like, I kind of like you, you know? Yes. You, you have bad hair, but I like you. And she says... She responds to him like with tears in her eyes, even as a little boy, you didn't want us too close. Which Oof. again, that like push and pull of wanting to be close to your family, but also wanting your complete independence. 
And that line really rang a bell with me of that conflict of of family that I struggle with to this day. Yeah. And I think the way that Anne Bancroft delivers that, um, it's one of those moments. It just, it feels so sharp and like perfectly acted. Um, and that's the thing that I, I, I can't really fault this movie for is except for Donnie Jr. Who's in a different movie, but I happen to enjoy everybody's acting <laughs> is this very kind of low key naturalistic style. Um, and I think the, the parents especially kind of really set the tone for that. And you can tell that they're both just great actors who have been doing it forever. They were by my favorite part of the movie by yeah. far were the, the parents, their relationship and their relationship with their kids. I think that was really the heart of the movie. Um, I got the Gutenberg football fight as my next. <laughs> yes. Scene, which again, uh, just it's so funny watching. This reminds me of Arrested Development whenever Michael and Job would get into a fight when brothers are just like rolling around on the grass wrestling each other but they just look so dumb because neither knows how to fight and then the dad sprays the hose on them and you know that water's freezing yes that chicago november water coming off the hose (laughs) the uh and it's ridiculous and leo fish is not helping the situation he is totally uh they're just emasculating steve gutenberg in front of his children by playing to the point, Nerf football. To the point where he decides, I'm going to get my family, we're going to get in this soapy car, <laughs> and we're out of here. And that really made me laugh, seeing him drive off in a car covered in soap as the dad wasn't finished washing it. Yeah, I also like the fact that um, the dad, which also feels very much like a dad thing, when things inside got boring and there was no more food to eat at the moment, he goes outside and starts washing people's cars for them. <laughs> like, like you don't know how to take care of your cars. You're a bunch of children. I need to wash your cars for you. Which, that- if he saw the state of my car, I would be mortified. <laughs> my car's needed a bath for a while now. A uh, bath! A bath! <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, boy. Um. Uh, I do always... Uh, wash my car when I'm going to see my parents or when they're coming down here because I don't want to hear it. (laughs) See, I think I just gave up on the whole, like, I don't want to hear it, which I think infuriates my mom even more that in many of the things that she wants me to change about myself, I've just adopted a sorry, but you need to get used to it mentality now. (laughs) So... Another thing that felt very true to dads is when there's a lull in the action, it's time to watch football and drink beer. <laughs> yes. And so he sits down and Claudia sits down next to him and drinks a beer with him. And she says, it's like a 35 inch TV. And she, she, I just love the, how quaint technology is. Yeah. She goes, enormous TV. And the dad goes, yep, too big. <laughs> while i'm watching this i'm like this monster tv that's taking up half my wall and i'm surely burning my corneas with its bright lights as i sit in a dark room (laughs) 
That's my thought exactly. I was watching it. Uh, I watched this last night. So I've started watching our movies before bed um, and actually taking notes on my phone instead of taking them on my laptop. Uh, yeah. And it, I've actually gotten really used to this process now. You're watching them in bed? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Sitting up in bed. It's, it's, normally I, I find something, a cozy horror movie to watch uh, before bed. You know what? I feel genuinely this whole recording just got a little bit more intimate and sensual. <laughs> knowing that you watch this from your bed next to your wife as she lays. Uh, and the thing is, I put in an AirPod and I stream the audio directly to my uh, head. So it doesn't bother her. I can listen to your head. (laughs) (laughs) And she likes to sleep with an eye mask anyway. Like she's a fancy lady in the 1940s or something. Um, So the lights don't bother her. And uh, last night as we were watching it, or as I was watching it, she woke up because the dog was scratching at the bed. She woke up, looked at the TV and goes, is this home for the holidays? Oh, hell yes. (laughs) (laughs) She was so excited by our picks this week when I told her she was just she's like, yeah, those are my kind of movies. Forget Blade Runner. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you're brave enough, one day we'll have her on the show. Oh, my gosh. She was my original podcast partner. Like, really? Like, what was your show? It was called I Am a Film Scientist. Uh, It was back about 10 years ago when we were doing sketch comedy together. Nobody did podcast 10 years ago. No, I was an early adopter. Uh, Just think if you had stayed with it, you could potentially have like a big show on your hands just due to the nature of long running podcasts. Yeah, it totally could have been. And we were like, I think, very charming together, uh, even though we weren't like together at that point in time. Whoa, this you guys were just friends. Yes. So there's recorded documents. Wow. Yeah. So I can listen to that show and just listen to you two fall in love? No, because we wouldn't fall in love for like another eight years. Well, that's a waste of time. It's, it's you, guys, you guys should have fallen in love back then. We were both married. We were both very good people. Eh, marriage, marriage. What does that mean? <laughs> you know what? Knowing what I know now, I might have risked it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they go. I got uh McDermott and Claudia go on the date next, right? Yes, they have to take uh, Joanna's Tupperware back to her um, because she left it at the house when they left in a huff. And they get caught kissing on the doorstep. Um, And it's like they're beginning to thaw each other's edges, I guess. Uh, And then comes, for me, maybe the, the saddest moment in the movie and it's the fight between Claudia and Joanna in the basement. When uh, Joanna's on the, the stair stepper um, and they, she says to her sister, if we met on the street and you gave me your phone number, I would throw it away. Like, we don't relate at all. And that hurt. That's, that's a hell of a thing to say to your sibling, man. Yeah. Because I know we all feel that every now and then of like, I have no connection to this person, but it's usually temporary where you might fix that relationship or remember when you're in a better mood a couple weeks later and it's not Thanksgiving. You're like, 
oh yeah, my sister's okay or something. But yeah. that that felt like a burn bridging. Yeah. Br- a br- bridge oh, burning. God. <laughs> <laughs> a bridge burning moment that yeah. And the fact that she's doing it on her yuppie ass stairmaster too. <sighs> yes. Cracked me. <laughs> and she it, tells her um you know, something about like, why don't you leave so I can get back to this? That's the only thing I like doing in the day. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh God, what a bleak portrait. No, this woman hates everything about her life, which if you see her kids and husband in this movie, it makes sense. Yes. Um, either before or after this, uh, Claudia says to Leo, um, do you ever look at your family and wonder like who these people are or this is where I came from? That's definitely, I think everyone has one of those moments where when you get a few minutes around Thanksgiving to go to the bathroom or take a shower or anything and just kind of step back from the chaos of it all. Like, Jesus, this is, Mm -hmm. this is like, (laughs) this is what I was birthed from. Yes. This madness. (laughs) Um, I I like that Leo says, um, when I go home for Thanksgiving, my dog, my dad talks about golf and par and hitting under par and all this bullshit. But I let him because I know inside he's probably screaming too. Yes. That's pretty insightful, Leo, that you realize that your parents are going through the same human experience that you are. I think that's a hard realization to have. And because we don't we don't see our parents going through the same things as us. Right. I, I mean, I'm not until I was, I don't know, 20s or 30s was I able to have more empathy of like, oh, okay, you you have the same insecurities I do. Or you have the same fears and worries and all these patterns that we share that I always thought were somehow we were completely different people. The weird realization, and it's not a one-time realization, at least not for me, but that your parents uh, were making it up as they went along. (laughs) They had no idea what they were doing. And like, because... I have no idea what I'm doing. I've had now three kids and still with the third one, it's a whole different ball game than with the first two. They're all different. You, you make up shit as you go along and you don't really have like a grand plan. A lot of times your plan is how do I get through today? Make sure everybody's fed and then get back in bed tonight so I can watch TV for 45 minutes before I fall asleep. Yeah, that's there's, but there's nothing else to life. That's right. That's all life is. There's not some great meaning that you can teach your kids in a single day and then you'll enrich. I don't, it's just the learning and stuff comes along with the survival basically. But yeah, man, that's just, I think once we realize that it's okay for things to be mundane and repetitive, I think you, it's easier to access like a healthy mindset of like, movies have taught me that I should be going on like adventures and traveling and ha- like boat races and parachuting off of cliffs or whatever, but enjoying a cup of coffee in the morning when it's quiet and the sun's coming up. There's nothing wrong with that. Have you seen my dinner with Andre? Yes. That's like, I'm, I'm, I'm such a Wallace Shawn from that movie uh-huh. because he listens to his friend describe all of these insanely extravagant adventures. And then Wallace Shawn's like, yeah, but, what about when you just sit there and you just take a moment to just listen 
and to just notice things around you. And that's that's how I connect. That's that's what I want to be. I want to find that peace in my daily life so I don't have to be searching for it through crazy things. Yeah. And it's funny, like the other day I texted you and I was having a moment. I was having a a, a panicky, overwhelmed feeling. And what I did eventually was sit down and write a little bit. And it, it was me for a half hour or 45 minutes, like with a pen and paper and writing what was in my head. And it was like, I felt more grounded and connected. Um, and it was just that little bit of like observation and getting out of the, the thought process that I need to do something that really helped me get, come back to earth. That sounds genuinely like a scary exercise. <laughs> no, it's, it's something, there's something very vulnerable even if no one else is ever going to see that piece of paper, mm-hmm. I know what thoughts I have in my head, but to put them on paper is almost to confirm these things mm-hmm. in a way that would be hard. Because I think as soon as you start writing after 30 minutes, especially if you go that long, you're going to have some real heavy stuff on that paper. Some real big conflicts that you're going to then confront. The funny thing is, um, because for quite a while I did uh, the artist's way, which involves getting up every morning and journaling for like 10 minutes. Um, And it's just to get your pen moving and to kind of unlock yourself and get used to writing for the day. And you're supposed to write whatever's on your mind. And there were times when I would wake up with like whatever heavy shit had been on me the day before and I write it out. And in the process of writing it, it does confirm that that's my belief, but it also kind of like makes it manageable for me. Like I go, oh, okay. You know, really it takes up the same amount of brain space as something that might be ultimately minor. You know, I get panicked when I have to, uh, if I have to call and order a pizza, like it gives me a moment of panic. Like that's nothing. That's bullshit. It's the same thing if I have to call my boss and ask her something like it takes up the same amount of space in my brain for some reason. And I realize I'm like, oh, those two things are comparable. Neither one is worth panicking over. Yes. um, That's I think the magic journaling, which I've tried to get into it and I've kept it for a a minute or two, a couple of days here or there. But it, it is cathartic or at least putting it on paper it's like you're transferring the weight from your mind to that piece of paper so it's like i know it's still there but at least i'm not carrying the weight of it like yes. i was i don't know i i i've been kind of going through a weird up and down fall psychologically um so i think i probably have a lot of journaling to do honestly <laughs> I think that that would be a good exercise for you. And I think everybody should probably do it at some point in in their lives. Um, Claudia and Leo, I like when they go back to the house and raid the fridge. I like it, except for the fact that this man chooses to drink a glass of milk on his first date. (laughs) I, I drink milk every now and then when I have it in the house. It's not... 
it's not attractive. <laughs> Seeing somebody drink a glass of milk is just, it's not a good look for anyone. <laughs> is it, um, are, are you, so you're not anti-milk entirely? No, I, I enjoy it. Okay. I wish I didn't because I, I don't like the milk industry and wish I didn't like their products and wish there was better vegan butter and stuff. But it's drinking a glass of milk. It's something that looks very childish. <laughs> and then the fact that they're like eating Wonder Bread sandwiches and then they have like sandwich in their mouth and then sipping a glass of milk to then like wash it down. When she looks in his teeth, <laughs> what the fuck, Josh? <laughs> she opens his mouth and is like examining his bottom gum line. Yes. There, what is this? Uh, that's Midwestern intimacy right there. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that, that whole part reminded me of. I was like, this is a total Midwestern midnight snack type situation that's going on here big old glass of it, milk it, like white bread turkey sandwiches yeah it it was mind-blowing <laughs> <laughs> um so we're gonna get to my favorite bit of this movie which is uh henry's monologue mm -hmm. this this moment where he talks about um taking his family to the airfield and because he was a mechanic or a janitor there they were able to get right up against the runway and his kids were all scared and squeezing his hand except for his daughter who was standing there so brave and when he says one of a, one of the great moments of my life 1969 10 seconds man that weight on his face um that was a real moment in this movie mhm mm this that's I think that's what I was looking for more, especially from a holiday movie, is just more emotionally more more emotional moments that I can grab onto like this one. That's I feel like that's something in both of these movies. I mean, uh, I think Planes Trains is ultimately funnier, uh, but it's its emotional moments are pretty sparse. Uh, but when they hit, they hit pretty well. And this one with Charles Durning, um, once again, kind of like Anne Bancroft's line, it got me. I was like trying to examine it. I'm like, that's some fucking acting right there. That is a man bringing his life experience and saying something truthful through this little moment of dialogue that he has. And, and it's beautiful. I think. And it's very truthful of like, what do I remember from my, my girls growing up or great moments in my life? And it literally is like, you know, the first time I drove to Virginia beach, like driving, uh, seeing the sunrise in the mountains, um, and listening to music. And it's like, that's a moment that's in my brain forever. And it was, you know, less than a minute of that of seeing that view but that's in there and it's one of those things i return to over and over again and it's like those little pockets of solace and beauty in your life oh yeah just thinking back on like past relationships and stuff and just having little flashes of just moments where you're just so present in that content and happiness or 
love or peace, whatever emotion it is. Um, and it's it's sad to think about how many of those those little memories I've forgotten over the years mm-hmm. as our memories fade and change and things. And um, what what have I forgotten? You know, what am I missing? What what moments of my childhood were really special that I wish I could recall, but mm-hmm. I can't. And there's something also about bittersweet moments for me that as they age, they only turn sweeter. Uh, I remember like probably my, my first real time, like struggling with depression and alcoholism when I was in college, but it also led to me like having these moments where I would be out in the city uh, rollerblading because it was the late nineties, um, <laughs> late at night by myself and the feeling of that. And it was like for a while I could only express it through feeling I was angry and pent up and had to get my energy out. And now I look back at it and I'm like, I was so like sweet and lost at that moment. And I have so much sympathy for that person. Um, and I can like kind of connect directly to that version of myself. And I feel like give him a lot more grace than I, than I could at the time or have been able to for a long time. Wow. That, that's a huge realization. Cause when I think about my self and my early twenties, I'm usually very, very critical. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's really kind of beautiful that you <laughs> would approach that guy with empathy. I mean, we were all just like dumb and and struggling, I feel like, and not knowing what we were doing. Oh, yeah, that's just 20s. Like 20, yes. everyone at 22 years old, there's very high potential of your 22 years old. You are your worst self. Yes. Uh, and I think the idea that you you don't know what ripples you cause in the, the fabric of uh, reality and the relationships around you until you're much older. Uh, I think that that's one of those kind of profound things of feeling like you're totally alone and then realizing like, no, you kind of always have impact on people around you. And even when you're feeling you're most alone, there probably is somebody who you can connect with and have some kind of rapport with. and. I was just refusing at that point in time or didn't know enough to seek it out. Finding community was a struggle still mm-hmm. has been, but you know, once I turned 21, I was like, well, this is easy now. Find my community in the bar. Cause that's where it's like, there's other regulars. They're always there. And so it's just like, there's just safety and going to like a happy hour mm-hmm. and just, and then when I moved to San Francisco, same thing. And so now I I have my group of friends here. I don't need that part of my life. So I'm trying now to like move out of that lifestyle and into some more healthy activities, you know, trying to find like a hiking group or just groups that don't revolve around drinking. Right. Um, It would be great (laughs) because that's basically like my entire social life from 21 on has pretty much revolved like one way or another, like meeting people through the consumption of alcohol, Mm -hmm. which is fun when you're twenties, but now it 
it's not fun anymore. Yeah. I would really like to find a board game group. That's my. Yeah, I I started. I tried to get like a game night going with friends who I have in town here, and uh, I love my friends, but they're hard to get to commit to things sometimes. <laughs> and that was back when they didn't have kids, and now mm. they're having kids, and others are trying to have kids. And when you're a single guy and your friends have kids and are trying to have kids, uh, you're the last thing on their mind. Yes, that's. Having been the flip side of that coin for so many years, uh, I I know that because I was like the only family person in my group of friends and they went like they'd go on trips kind of at the last minute together, like, you know, four or five guys getting a cheap Airbnb someplace and, and crashing for a few days. And I'm like, I can't, I've you know, we've got ballet like i have i have shit to do yeah Uh, and now that my girls are older and i get to do more of those things again um it's weird that it's like almost cyclical of coming back to that same group and getting to hang out more now that's fun yeah yeah i know i'm sitting here i'm like all right i just got a 19 years and then all their kids will be moved out, and then we can have fun again. By the time they're teenagers, so you only have... I know, I know. You only have, know. like, 12 or 13 years. I know, especially once the kids can drive. Yes. Um, let's close this movie out. I got them going to the airport next. Uh, McDermott and Claudia. Yep. What do you, what do you have? Um, I've got... Uh, well, when Claudia gets on the plane, <clears throat> she expresses that she let uh, Leo go. Because he tries to get her to commit to a long-distance relationship in the car, right? Uh, yes, and then he tries to get into her bedroom that night, and with the implication that they're going to try to have a long-distance relationship, I think. Um, he says something to um, to one of the kids, uh, Leo does, where he's like, you know, when you're 18, you think you're going to have so many opportunities for people who are going to love you and care about you. And you're going to piss them all away, and then you're going to realize that you better hang on to it when one comes by. And I was like, God, if it, if that isn't true. Yes. Then it... That's that's what he says to the cashier at the at the diner. Yes, because he wants to send them away without coffee. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when the next day, when Claudia gets on the plane, first of all, I would love to see a plane that empty. I have, oh my god, there's like eight people on this yes. thing. It's amazing. I've only ever been on like one flight like that, and it was glorious. And this was Thanksgiving Friday? She's flying on a plane this empty? Yeah, I don't buy it. Mm, now, see, this this ruins the movie for me, yep. this little bit. <laughs> uh, and then, have you ever gotten onto a plane from the rear? Mm, no. I don't think I no. have either. What's, yeah, I don't know what the deal is with that. Yeah, because Leo walks up behind her. We see him in the background walking mm. with his lamp and a jug of orange juice for some reason. The orange juice confused me. <laughs> it's also I have weird things about like consumption of foods and liquids, I guess. Not liquids as much, but seeing these two people 
passing back and forth a bottle of orange juice as they're talking about potentially being in a relation. I don't know. Something about the orange juice grossed me out. It It's not supposed to remind you of this, but it reminded me of the moment in Ghostbusters when they get kicked out of the university um, and Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd are standing on the, the steps, um, I believe, of the university and they're passing a bottle of vodka back and forth when they're talking. Like, <laughs> and But those guys are making idiotic decisions and you can kind of understand the frat boy we're passing the booze back and forth thing. The bottle, <laughs> the bottle of orange juice, was it spiked? Did he make it into a screwdriver? Is that what the implication is supposed to be? Maybe. I don't know. Did you ever drink Sunny Delight? Uh, yes. Yeah. I also, I think part of the reason that I didn't like that scene is because that looked like Sunny Delight. Mm. And just thinking about Sunny Delight, my tongue is already feeling the sweet acid. Just from yep. saying the word Sunny Delight. Yep. Sunny Delight, it can't be legal anymore, right? Because they sold concentrated juice, like as a drink. You're drinking concentrate, I think. The the mouthfeel of Sunny Delight. <laughs> it's more upsetting than the word mouthfeel is. <laughs> I don't think anybody's ever said that sentence before in the history of mankind. <laughs> the mouthfeel of Sunny Delight. Ugh. But it's uh, I can feel it right now. Yeah. It's very distinct. Yeah. And so what with their con- their conversation concludes basically like we don't need to make any big decisions now, but what if we just sit here for a couple hours next to each other and see what happens? Yes. Uh, um, what do you think about ending this movie on the flashbacks? We then flash back to a couple moments, specifically also the moment with the family standing on the runway. Um, it kind of worked, but it felt manipulative. I think it undersells Henry's monologue. Yes, it... I found his monologue more powerful than the image itself. Yes. So I think it actually knocked... It watered it down a little for me. Yeah, I can see that. I think... I liked the idea, and seeing them... It is very manipulative, but seeing just... This whole movie is kind of about, like, nostalgia and past and stuff. So, like, seeing Henry and his wife at the bowling alley... And when he talks about how well they fit together mm-hmm. back then and seeing some of these things, it's really nice, but it's, it's kind of cramming in the emotion in the last 30 seconds. And I don't quite, I, I wish it would have been throughout the movie as opposed to just slamming it on the end. I also feel like it would have been stronger for me if it hadn't had his memory at the airstrip. If it was I think almost, if it if it had been other memories without yeah. that one, yes, I totally Be- agree because with you there. The bowling and then them dancing, I thought was very sweet. Um, I really liked getting to see uh, Tommy and his husband like embracing yeah. on the beach. I thought that was really nice. And you see him um, with his chosen family, like you see one scene earlier when they're on the phone. Of, the most pretentious looking Thanksgiving in the world. Yes, they're they are a <laughs> bunch of like northeastern yuppies. yuppies. Yeah. Uh and they live in a very sparse loft looking place. Uh, but it looked like they were having maybe like a clam bake or something at the beach with all their friends. Um 
or roasting corn over coals or something. And that looked kind of sweet. And like, uh, you know, I like that little moment for them. And it did look healthy. And it seemed like seeing Downey Jr. appearing more calm and collected there. Yeah. Like, okay, maybe is it just his family that brings out like the tweaker anxiety side of him where he has to act out like he's 12 years old? Yeah. And when he's actually with Jack, his partner balances him and calms him down. I, It's kind of the vibe you get, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that's supposed to be the implication, but they didn't do enough to really like underline that and make it truthful, I feel like. Um, so I, I, I hate to ask, we haven't rated this movie yet. What do you rate it? Uh, I think you're going to be okay. Okay. I... I, I three out of five. Okay. I think Henry's performance. Um, yeah, Anne Bancroft and Charles Durning, again, were like the anchors of this movie for me. That really tied everything together and brought everything back home. Holly Hunter's good. McDermott is kind of a two face in this, but he is damn charming when he wants to be, and. I'm not saying Downey Jr.'s bad. I'm just saying I don't like him. Like I, I think he's a talented actor. It's just not my cup of tea. Um, and it's there's a lot of truths, as we've been talking about in this movie, so I think the script is good. Um, but it's just missing some heart for me, I think, is the main problem. Okay. I'm glad I watched it, though. I I totally can see that. For me... As I was watching it, I was realizing that I have this big affinity for movies like this. Um, uh, like I said earlier, it reminded me of Moonstruck. It reminded me of um, Big Night. Uh, I've seen Moonstruck once when I was a kid. Okay. I only remember when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie. <laughs> and his wooden hand. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what's Big Night? Oh, we watched Big yes. Night. <laughs> Wait, I was like, Big Night, that sounds familiar. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> another movie that kind of ends unresolved and is just a slice of life hanging out with these two brothers and the few people in their neighborhood. Um, Moonstruck has a little more structure to it, but is still basically kind of a hangout movie. Um, I think Mystic Pizza also falls in the same category, which is a movie I haven't seen for quite a while, but I remember really, really liking. Like, there's something about I've this. never heard of that one. Oh, it's might be Julia Roberts' first movie uh, back mm. before she was Julia Roberts. Okay, let, you mentioned Hook when we were talking about Spielberg yes. over text, and you're like, oh, yeah, but Julia Roberts is a fairy, you know, whatever, great. Yeah. I somehow I developed an anti Julia Roberts rhetoric when I was about 10 years old. Uh And I actually remember why this happened because uh, Braveheart came out in 95. And so I saw it on VHS, but then it's DVD got released in like 99 or 2000. And I really wanted the DVD. And so my sister bought me a present and wrapped it up. And it was DVD size and like sick. I kind of like fucking watch Braveheart. I open it up and it's Aaron Brockovich (laughs) with a receipt because Braveheart hadn't come out yet on DVD for like another two months. Okay. And so she bought that as a placeholder for me. But still, I was like, fucking Aaron Brockovich. (laughs) (laughs) 
See, so I just had like a weird anti-Julia Roberts thing, like as far as I could remember. Now you're dogging on two of my things because that's a Soderbergh <laughs> movie too, man. It is. Yes. Uh oh. Yep. Uh oh. That's that is a legitimately that is one of the movies. Um, so maybe 15 years ago, I actually entered into a um, paralegal slash pre-law program here in Nashville, um, where there was a, a a track that you could take to become a paralegal and then um, go on to study law. And I thought this was a thing that I wanted to do because I was getting out of doing movies. Um, it felt like a, a big waste of time to chase your dreams kind of thing. And uh, when I was in this program, they showed us, um, we would have like study sessions. And when you're waiting for your one-on-one time with the, with the teacher, um, they would show movies. And they showed Aaron Brockovich and, oh, God. Um, I can't remember the other one right now. Pelican Brief. The, the Pelican Brief, yes. The Rainmaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just guessing the lawyer movies. Uh, uh, a Time to Kill. Yes. Uh, oh, shit. Atticus Finch. <laughs> just, yeah, like Atticus. I know, it's not the name. <laughs> they just... <laughs> <laughs> they just show you Gregory Peck's picture. <laughs> uh, this is what you should aspire to be. But it really, it messed me up because they showed us, like, there was the ability to watch two or three of these great movies. Uh, and I was like, fuck, I don't want to be a lawyer. I want to be the guy who tells the stories about the lawyers. And I immediately, like, after my year there, I never got a paralegal job. Uh, and I went back into production work. Yeah, I'd, I'd much rather write and shoot the movie of Aaron Brockovich for nine months than sit in the legal battles for seven years. Yes. Totally true. Also, tries. court is really boring when it's not in movies. Oh, it totally sucks. It's like incredibly boring. Yes. <laughs> That's I, I really liked preparing arguments and actually getting to argue them. Those parts were fun. Uh, I did not like the waiting around part or listening to other people make arguments that that's horrible. Oh God. Okay. You did this two weeks ago. You start to review the movie and then you completely go on a <laughs> tangent and then we forget to get your review. So bringing it back, bring what it do back. you think of home for the holidays? Uh, I give it three and a half stars. I think. That- oh no, Josh, I don't, I didn't drag this movie down for you. Did I? No, no, it's never like been like a five star movie for me or anything. Okay, I was worried that like <laughs> this was one of your favorites, and my negativity today has crushed your spirit. No, it is. I it still is that kind of cozy, slightly charming movie for me. I do like uh, Downey Jr.'s energy, and I still have a crush on Holly Hunter. So it kind of it still all works for me. I think. Right on. Well, I still have a crush on Claire Danes. Yes, to be fair. Uh, also, there was an interview with her a couple years ago where she just sounded really down to earth. And like, she likes to hang out and watch movies and knit. And I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> How far did you make it in that show? Uh, her show? Homeland. Oh, I've, I've barely scratched the surface. I think I maybe did half the first season. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I, I watched 
two seasons mm-hmm. and then i couldn't believe that it kept going and going and it sounds like it went so far from where it started yeah it's okay uh mandy pentankin's beard was distracting All right, Sean, I picked the last movie. I introed the last movie. You chose for us Planes, Trains, and Automobiles from the inimitable John Hughes. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about it and why you picked it? Uh, yeah, I picked this movie because I've only seen it once before, and I actually was very late cover to this. I saw it during quarantine last summer, and I don't think I realized it was a holiday movie. So I watched it and loved it, but I watched it in, like, July or August. And I was like, oh, that sucks. <laughs> I wish I hadn't have done that. So I just really wanted to watch it again. And I there was a lot that I had forgotten about it from my first watch. I just remember laughing out loud and crying. And if a movie can do both of those things to me, which John Hughes, I think, was pretty damn good at doing both of those things. Um, then I'm probably going to be into it. John Candy, just on a whole, as a person, as his career, just carries such empathy. And every single story that you hear people say what a kind, giant-hearted man he was. And it comes through in every performance of his. Even when his performance is meant to be a little bit cynical, he still has... Uh, just this childlike innocence and love inside of him that that I it's not often that you see that I feel like in an in an actor where it's just it feels the warmth that comes off of him in this and Uncle Buck in um the great outdoors it, it feels real. It doesn't feel like a put on for his character. Mm-hmm. What have you seen this before? I'm sure you have, right? So I had seen it in bits and pieces, I think when I was a kid, um, and had, uh, I watched it the first time all the way through sitting down, uh, almost six years ago to the day. This is what, this is what Letterboxd tells me. So clearly I watched it as a, as a Thanksgiving, um, back in 2015. So yeah, uh, I'm, it's the 17th right now. I'm leaving. I'm driving home in, you know, five or six days Mm -hmm. to go home for Thanksgiving. So this is perfectly timed. Yeah. Uh, And it's weird because I clearly remembered like a few scenes from it. Um, The, the car accident, I think is the standout, standout piece. Also the phrase um, they've got helium in them. So they're lighter when he holds up the shower. (laughs) The shower ring this, or the curtain ring? Th- I'm not going to tell you which scene, but this movie has one scene that may be one of the funniest things I've ever seen, <laughs> and I literally had tears in my eyes from laughing today. Okay. So as we go, just remember, at some point I cried laughing. I want you to call that moment. Oh my gosh. This uh, so tough. we. this movie stars, uh, like I said, Steve Martin and John Candy. Steve Martin is an ad executive named Neil Page. John Candy's a traveling salesman named Dale Griffith. Uh, I like when we start 
this whole intro meeting with the boss where there's not a single word spoken mm-hmm. and there's just so many long breaths and pauses and I've never I've never really worked at jobs where there's meetings like this so yes. I don't know the agony of this but you can feel it and it's excruciating and uh, I have worked at jobs like this <laughs> and it feels way too accurate <laughs> of someone I, just kidding. he's just looking at this picture like from a bunch of different angles. It's so ridiculous. It's pretty goofy when they highlight the the destination and time of departure yeah. on his plane ticket. <laughs> that was in the center of frame. Like my eyes were already drawn to that line of text. Yes. You didn't need to highlight it. Uh, um, did you recognize his coworker uh right at the beginning? Okay, the guy, yeah, that guy looked very familiar, but I don't know what or who he is uh well i know what he is (laughs) (laughs) clearly he's an actor (laughs) uh that's lyman ward who uh i know as ferris bueller's dad oh totally yes yeah that's uh and every time i see him because he's another one of these like character actors who's in kind of a whole bunch of things and you'll see him pop up in weird roles, um, like in Nightmare on Elm Street 2 uh, or Sleepwalkers. And you go, oh, shit. Yeah, that guy. Like, he's fairly distinctive in his presence. Uh, and I like his uh, what he brings to his like little tiny role. There's a few people in this that have little tiny roles that are all really great, I think. Yeah, well, we're about to get one. We have a wild Kevin Bacon out in the streets of New York City. Wow, this part seems way too small for him, but this was this was like right around the time of his Friday the 13th entrance, right? Because this movie was 87, and... I mean, that's like or not, six years or something. Yeah, so... He does look older, but I'm just surprised yes. that he hasn't hit it yet, because this he doesn't even have a line of dialogue. No, he's just some guy who's also trying to get a cab. Yeah. Um, so I know it's it's not fair to compare <laughs> John Hughes direction um versus Jody Foster's, mm-hmm. but just right here, right off the bat with this chase sequence where you get the extreme close-ups of both of their eyes squinting as they lock eyes, and then the music kicks in and you get the shot of their feet, and just there's so much life brought to this with the direction and the editing, mm-hmm. and just the choices, and Hughes just has such polish, and he has such a presentation that going seeing this after watching Home for the Holidays... This was like mind blowing how much like excitement and everything is going on. And like the camera's moving and people are sprinting and there's loud music and uh, there's so much uh, record scratching. Yes. It's so 90s in this movie. Uh, it's it's such a cheese ball soundtrack, but I love it. Well, and right at the beginning, that shot that you called out of the plane ticket, um, there's the close up of his watch, which comes into play later, that it it feels like so purposeful and stylistic whereas Jodie Foster's camera is just kind of like I'm going to sit back and capture this whole whole room and everything that's happening in it and yeah, this which is so I, directed feeling yeah and I think it, it worked for home for the holidays because I think that if you have a script that kind of reads like it could be performed on a on a theater 
on a theatrical stage, then maybe you do want a little bit more of a minimal camera work where mm-hmm. you're just allowing the actors to act and leave the cuts long. Don't hyper edit things. So it does work, but not for everything. I, I, if we had a minimalist direction style for this movie, I, I don't even know what that would look like. No, and some of the gags wouldn't play at all. Like it, this almost felt um, like early Coen Brothers, like Raising Arizona kind of level of direction, which I think is like peak. Mm, I've never seen that. You've never seen Raising Arizona? Mm-mm. I like no, it's Cage, right? Mm-hmm. That's all I know about it. I don't know anything else. Wow. Okay. Well, add it to the list. Yeah. Um, have you been to New York City? I have never been to New York City. It looks like a panic attack. <laughs> there's there's too many people. I don't like it. I it's just not for me. Um Oh, I wrote haha classic attorney joke when the guy says uh I what does he say when Martin's trying to bribe him to get his tab, cab he's like yeah. oh I don't have a a soul I'm a lawyer or whatever it's just yeah it's so in that that wheelhouse of like lawyer jokes late yes. 80s early 90s he says something like uh you're quite the thief or something is that like, close I'm a lawyer yeah so while he is arguing with this guy to get a cab John Candy steals his cab. Um, when Steve Martin's running down the street, flailing his arms mm-hmm. <laughs> with his bags in both and his hat and his trench coat, he's running so preposterously, like extending both of his arms to the side. It, it's great watching him <laughs> sprint down the New York City street. It, it cracks me up. Um, we haven't gotten to talk about it. We don't talk about like acting styles or people's whole careers or whatever. But Steve goddamn Martin, I mean, he is still, I don't know if you watched Only Murders in the Building recently uh, no. with Steve Martin and Martin Short. And I, I hear they're doing some good stuff, those two. Yes. Uh, I also liked their, um, I don't know if it was a Broadway special or whatever that they did a couple years ago. That was great. Uh, but what a treasure Steve Martin is. <laughs> like, I've I've gone deep on this guy reading his uh, biography um, and just going back through his like albums and stuff and recognizing how good he is at what he does and how purposeful and like thoughtful in these two guys. This could have been a worse movie, even with the same direction with different actors, I feel like. Yeah, they play off each other so well it's it's like they're one of the great comedy pairings i feel honestly it's like it's hard to find this magic but when you get that farley spade Mm -hmm. or these two guys or abbott costello or whatever that it's just what one guy lacks and the other guy has and vice versa yes and so together they really complete each other yeah um steve uh we they live in are all chicago houses miniature mansions I mean, because in, Steve in, Martin lives in one, and Home Alone has taught me that if you live in Chicago suburbs, your house is a red brick mansion. Yes. Uh, this is the flip side to what we talked about in Candyman. This is just a couple miles away from Cabrini Green. Like, go through downtown and go up to the other side, 
and there you are in this world. Uh, and then I guess later you get a different version of it with Wayne's world on the outskirts of Chicago. And you see what that's like uh, a little more middle class, but yeah, I thought everybody grew up and lived in houses like this when I, during the eighties. Yeah, totally. Which is like, yeah, you have four people. Why don't you need an eight bedroom house? That makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I got his flight getting delayed next. Yes. Uh, so you know my experience recently coming home from Portland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my flight was supposed to leave at 6 a.m. We get on the plane. It's like 6.10, ready to take off. And then the pilot Oh, folks, uh, there's an issue with the uh, co-pilot's chair. It's uh, stuck and the co-pilot can't sit down. So we're going to have to onboard the plane. Onboard the plane. Two hours later, flight gets canceled. So now I'm trapped in Portland. I have to book a flight through Denver with a two and a half hour layover to fly Denver, Portland to Denver, back to California. And what was supposed to get home at like 8 a.m., I got home at 9 p.m. or something. It was like a 16 hour travel day. Like, I've had those days, but they've been planned and I was prepped for them. Having it happen uh, on accident? No, thank you. When I had to really just have like a come to Jesus moment where I was like, when I I looked at the Southwest app and I saw it was canceled and I was scanning for other flights. And when I realized this was my only option was that I was not going to get home at a reasonable hour. I just had to like take a couple deep breaths and try to accept <laughs> accept it for the day that it was going to become. Mm-hmm. And then I went and I got high in the bathroom, and that helped. <laughs> That'll take the edge off. <laughs> I was like, you know what? You fuckers are going to make me stay in the airport all day. I'm going to hit my vape pen in the stall, okay? <laughs> this is this is the deal we've worked out. Um, so when Steve Martin yells at the flight attendant uh, when he's getting on the plane because he's supposed to have a first-class seat, right? Yes. This reminds me of when my dad... My dad used to fly Reno Air a lot, and then Southwest bought Reno Air. And one time we were at the podium, and there was like a flight delay. And I remember it's like me and my sister standing there with my dad. And my dad, after a delay, starts laying into them like, you know, you guys have really screwed things up. You know, when you bought Reno Air, and he's talking to people who are working at the the podium. Uh-huh. So, so I remember my sister like dragging me away. Come on, like, let's go. Like, let's go out of here. But it's like thinking back on that now it's like the fuck are you, this low person this like pawn in the entire company right and you're gonna like take it out on them who has nothing to do with anything that's happening they're literally just standing there trying to help you yep and you're gonna berate them um that was like a real formative moment for me that i didn't realize at the time like don't don't get pissed off at people when they have no influence or input into the problem that you have is that a dad thing because I know my dad has like laid into uh, servers and restaurants or like phone representatives oh, and stuff. And I can't, I can't have it, man. I've had both those jobs. I've, I've been a server um, and I've, I've been worked phone banks in um, for like AT&T and stuff before. And neither one of those, you don't control shit in either one of those positions. And people unload on you all of the time. 
And I'm like, I can't even make the kitchen get your food to you when it's hot. Like, I didn't set up this system. I have nothing to do with it. I'm really, I'm just the person you interface with. That's all I am. I have no larger role here. And they seem to think that you have all the power. No, you went back there and you told the kitchen, like, hey, he wants this medium well, but burn the fuck out. <laughs> right. That doesn't happen, man. Because waiters don't want to have to deal with shitty customers. Yep. So it's always easier to get the food right than deal with your pain in the ass. Uh, you can really tell people who have never worked in a restaurant mm-hmm. just based on how they the expectations or how they treat people or talk down to people. That's, yeah. I've never experienced that on a date, but that's always been like one of my number one red flags is how somebody treats somebody like that or the cashier at a grocery store or valet or just like whoever, whoever you interact with, treat people with respect. Uh, screw the like the military. Uh, I think everybody should have to be drafted into serving front of house. Uh, in a restaurant at some point in their lives that's i didn't know i didn't know where that sentence was going but you started with screw the military (laughs) it was just veterans day like a week ago (laughs) i just i meant being drafted how's that i'll get a little more specific okay i've also often said that if there ever was a military draft thank god i'm 35 now yes but if there ever was i'm going straight to canada I don't care. I'm not fighting your war. Fuck no. you. Not going to... Uh, yeah. Um, so, Steve Martin gets put to coach. Who's there, of course, but Dell. Um, Dell starts taking his shoes off on the plane and then takes his socks off. I'm not even cool with open-toed shoes on planes. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want any business of your feet in my periphery. But to take your shoe off and then the sock, this is ridiculous. We're meant to think like Dell is an okay guy through most of the movie and that Steve Martin is being an uptight asshole. But really, this move right here, this is not cool. I don't care. And even the shit he does later does not compare to this moment. This is horrifying. Now, Dell is just so oblivious to everything of like how he annoys the shit out of people Mm -hmm. but it's it is part of his character you know we'll get the moment later where he's talking to himself in the car the burned out car when it's all snowed out and he's kind of having the the cathartic moment of like shit people i drive people crazy Mm -hmm. because i i won't stop talking i won't i just won't stop in general Uh, Um, i i do think this is where the phrase entered my like friend group though of uh ooh my dogs are barking <laughs> that's that's a classic dad ism yes. for sure um yeah so they both fall asleep on neil's shoulders um and then they get diverted because there's a storm in chicago and so they go to st louis they go to wichita first which oh right, Wichita, Kansas. Uh, their their plane is redirected to Wichita, and Steve Martin is trying to book a book another flight, but no one is flying to Chicago. It 
upset me that when we flashed to Chicago to see his family, that it's not snowing. Uh, I didn't notice that. <laughs> we see these establishing yeah. shots of his house and it's never snowing in Chicago. I think seen. it's I think it's one of those snowstorms where the, it's just snowing above 10,000 feet. But then the snow, it, the snow just stays at 10,000 feet or higher. So it's like a plane only storm. I do. <laughs> the growing up in the well not chicagoland area but on the lake basically i lived on the other side of lake michigan um we would get lake effect snow and wait wait we're in indiana yes so indiana is close to illinois <laughs> not, i'm I'm not bullshitting you. I did not know that, like, you're from the Great Lakes area. Yes. Yep. This changes. I thought, I honestly thought Indiana was more Midwest. No, it's very, like, technically it's Midwest, but it's very East. Is Indiana in Mimmel the Baker? I'm sorry. What now? <laughs> Mimolda Baker? Mimmel. That's, there's, if you take all the states from top to bottom, Minnesota, Illinois, Michigan, Alabama, Louisiana, it creates like a, 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 a the shape of a baker. If you just look at those states, and so that's how you remember. That's 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 how you remember those states. Except clearly, I don't remember it. Uh, that's I have okay. never heard of Mimelda Baker. M I M A L. Look them up. That uh, that sounds like um, uh, a Broadway star. <laughs> yeah. But oh, geography, geography. One day I'll get good at it. But the the trains that you see at the end of the movie, I've ridden on those trains because they go clear from South Bend, uh, Indiana, where I'm from, up into Chicago. You're from South Bend. That's where I was born. I we I grew up in the country, um, like twenty miles Whoa. outside of there. Wait, so I could have been making fun of you for Notre Dame this whole time? <laughs> oh, please don't. Ugh, I I have a this is so exciting. <laughs> I have a severe distaste for Notre Dame, having grown up with it shoved down my throat. But yeah, I was born basically across the street from Notre Dame. <laughs> who's the wild man now that's the part that always made me cry you know what i'm talking about i've never seen rudy on oh my god on principle i've never seen oh my god sometimes i get so upset with you (laughs) that i don't even know how to respond (laughs) have you ever slept in an airport yes really yes overnight no I've never been trapped overnight. I got stuck in Austin a couple years ago. Um, and it was literally from like a maybe 11 a.m. flight to like an 8 p.m. flight. Uh, that was the delay? They just canceled my flight. And so oh, shit. they were like, we can book you on this one tonight. Um, Fuck. And so I was at the airport all day long um, because I had already returned my rental car. Uh, Andrew, mm. Andrew and I were down uh, in Austin and I took him to the airport and I was like, oh, I'll have like 45 minutes. I'll go return the car and then I'll get on my flight 
And no, it was all fucking day. And there was a bomb scare, actually. They cleared out um, a wing of the airport or a good ch- a chunk of the airport while I was there. I so bet that was that, exciting. Yeah, I bet. I was going to say, I bet that at least took out like 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, after my dad died, I went to New Orleans by myself and I got went on my way back to California and I got to the airport too early. And so I just like, well, I'll just bounce from there's like three bars in that terminal. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, so I don't stay too long at any one. I'll just slowly make my way one to the next. And I was watching, uh, I think it was Halloween five on my cell phone. <laughs> okay. Listening to it on my headphones. And then, <laughs> drunk in a bar in New Orleans, going through grief and then ended up. My flight wasn't until, like, in the evening, so I ended up taking a little nap, and some guy, there's, like, a flight to Dallas before my flight to California, and some guy going to Dallas woke me up, he's like, hey, man, gonna miss your flight. <laughs> and I was like, ah, thank you, it's okay, though, I, I'll be the, <laughs> it's the next one. <laughs> um, but that's, that's it for me as far as airport sleeping. I remember one time, oh, this one guy, we went on a lacrosse trip in, like, high school i think a senior year of high school and this guy was so hungover that in the airport in the terminal he they gave him like a bucket oh and he was just like lying in the terminal under a blanket just in like cold sweat shivers mm-hmm. puking into this thing oh god <laughs> it was it's one of the gnarlier hangovers i've ever seen and it was on like an 18 year old kid who should not be getting hangovers yeah oh that is rough and nasty so they agreed to get a ride to a hotel because Dell has already foreseen all the problems that they're going to have and they get a ride by uh, fake Kramer this is the guy in Seinfeld (laughs) when they're making the show Seinfeld inside of Seinfeld this is the guy who plays Kramer yes and I thought he he was so funny on Seinfeld Mm -hmm. and he's very distinct looking guy um Oh, he was also in Happy or Billy Madison. He's Carl. He's Carl, like the good guy who is Billy Madison's dad's like right hand man, and in the end, Billy gives the company to him. Huh. I I, have... I might have seen Billy Madison. I don't. Oh, really Josh, remember. the age difference sometimes between us so really hurts our friendship. It's it's actually <laughs> the the sandlerness of it all. Uh, I was not a Sandler fan. He was very big and my friends saw those movies, but I did not like them. My favorite Adam Sandler movie is punch drunk love. Well, what, what year were you born in? I've never seen punch drunk love. Oh, that's great. Uh, 1979. Okay. So you are 16 years old when Billy Madison comes out mm-hmm. in 95. I could see you being at that age. It's too goofy. And you want to be, you want to go against what's popular. Oh, also. What about Happy Gilmore? Like, you, there was nothing there for you with Happy Gilmore? No, because um, he was not part of my Saturday Night Live. That was the, the problem. Like, him, it took me a long time to come around on Will Ferrell. Um, like, that era, uh, any of those people or any of those movies was, like, so far outside of mine because, no, it's. Dana Carvey and Mike Myers uh, and Phil and those guys were were my guys that I grew up with. Do you you still watch Saturday Night Live? Yes. So you've stuck with that show 
Always. Uh, I had a huge chunk where I didn't watch it and I would only like watch the recaps um, of episodes on uh, on Onion AV Club. When they they would do the write-up, I would read the write-ups. But I liked AV Club when they would do write-ups for stuff like that. Yeah. So, but since Elizabeth is so into comedy and now I know somebody on the show, uh, I've definitely back to watching it every week. Who do you know on the show? Because I hope it's not the person who annoyed me on a podcast recently. <laughs> it very well might be. I've heard some un- unflattering things about him. Uh, James Austin Johnson. Nope. Okay. I recently listened to Scott Hasn't Seen, which is one of the new Comedy Bang Bang World okay. podcasts. And so the premise is Scott hasn't seen movies, so then they bring him on and then maybe a guest to talk about that movie. Okay. So they brought on Ego, I can't remember her last name. Oh, Ego Wadnam? Yeah. And she didn't watch Ghost. Okay. So they brought her on to watch a movie that she hadn't seen, even though she that's the whole premise of the show is that they talk about the movie. So then it just became a completely derailed mess. Oh. And I wanted to hear them talk about ghosts. And instead <laughs> it was just like a complete mess and not my cup of tea. I can definitely see that. Yeah. Cause I like rules, Josh. I like rules and I want people to follow the rules and do what they're supposed to do. <laughs> and so I, I have no time for wild cards. Sean says, stay in your lane. I'm so anal sometimes, man. I get I, I I'm better about like the control freak aspect of things, but oh, when I used to like teach people baking and mm-hmm. stuff, and oh, see, just so hard for me sometimes to not go hands on and just like let people figure it out themselves. Oh yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, but I'm getting better, <laughs> getting better. Have you ever seen a vibrating bed? This is a thing I've only seen in movies and cartoons. Uh, yes, John Candy puts the quarter in it. Yes, I totally have. Um, that seems so kinky to me. I, it was it was a massage thing. It's not a kink thing. Um, <laughs> you sure? I would assume I feel like it's a lazy sex thing where like <laughs> she just gets on top. You put a quarter in, and then you can both just sit there and not do any work. Yeah, just kind of jiggle your way to, to <laughs> happiness. <laughs> um. <laughs> So, apparently, Dell takes a shower first, and then uh, Neil does, right? Because Dell has destroyed the bathroom. All of the towels have been used. There's wet newspaper on the floor. There's shit all over the sink. And I viscerally recoiled when Steve Martin stepped out of the tub and onto that wet towel on the floor. I, uh, I thought I thought there was for sure a, a pratfall coming. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. But have you as a man who has gone through depression? Uh-huh. I'm sure you've gotten through times where you've toweled yourself off as I have when your only clean towel is something tiny like that. <laughs> OK, I, I've used a hand towel to towel myself off before when like depression got the better of me and I just like was not doing laundry so here's the funny thing when i first got separated my first big purchase was actually a towel and it's a towel that i still use to this day it is a um uh pendleton i think um it's like a a fancy it was like an 80 dollar towel that i bought myself and it's they have a bunch of them that are themed after the state parks american uh, national parks 
And so I picked one of these towels because I thought it was the coolest thing. And I still have it. And I don't go a day without using that towel. I I will wash it in the evening so I can have it to dry myself the next morning. Do you how often do you wash your towel? Um it kind of it depends. It's not nightly. No, not nightly. Because there's some people who are one use only with their yes, towels. No. And I don't I don't even understand how that's possible. It's probably slightly more than weekly, and yeah. I take a full shower like every other day. I mean, if I wear my underwear four times, I'm definitely going <laughs> to use my towel more than once. Uh, Elizabeth made fun of me the other day because I will sometimes change my socks in the middle of the day. If, if I'm, Yeah. <laughs> all right. I think I also wear different shoes. I have like my morning shoes when I'm taking the Olivia to the bus. And then I have like my normal walking around shoes. Uh, so I pull a Mr. Rogers partway through the day. If I'm leaving the house and I'll change into different shoes or I'll put on my Crocs if I'm just going to stay in the house. I <laughs> have like, I've never seen a Mr. Rogers thing. No, I think, I think I've seen like a minute of a Mr. Rogers clip at some point, but, uh, no, I was talking with her friend Connie and she's like, so you weren't exposed to Muppets or Mr. Rogers, or, like, so many things that are kind of seminal, important building blocks for kids' personalities. <laughs> and I was just like, no. I I think I liked Sesame Street. They tell me I liked Sesame Street when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And then supposedly I liked E.T. when I was real little. But honestly, I primarily remember watching, like, Saturday morning cartoons like X-Men and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And then, like, getting really excited when I was eight or nine years old and we got a VHS copy of Terminator 2. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't have been watching a lot of the stuff I was watching. I don't know. But I just, I wasn't exposed to um, a lot of, like, the classics. I've never seen an episode of I Love Lucy. Okay. Um, what what about just, the Andy Griffith show? No. I only know that Ron Howard was born from that show. The show gave birth to Ron. <laughs> <laughs> like Athena stepping from the skull of Zeus. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so they're in bed. Neil's starting to get to the point where you hate every single thing about a person. When Dell is cracking his knuckles and snorting and doing all the, the little things. And it's at this point where I feel like Steve Martin is directly attacking our podcast. I don't know if you felt the same way. <laughs> but he's mean. like, your stories need to have a point. You go and you have anecdote and you won't stop talking. And the story needs to have an ending. And just like, I, I was like, oh my God, I feel personally attacked right now. <laughs> but the thing is, he's wrong because... That part of Dell isn't the bad part of Dell. I think that's the charming part of Dell. And that's the kind of guy that I would love to sit in an airport bar with and and talk for a couple hours before my flight. I wouldn't want to share a bed. No. Yes, it's small confined space with this man and long duration would be tough. But Dell seems very pleasant to talk to if if you're able to swallow whatever pride you have about like being annoyed by how folksy this guy is. <laughs> you know, if you can just accept that, like, 
he's just this guy. I think you could have a really good time hanging out with him. Yes. But Steve Martin, Neil, chooses to be annoyed um, in the first third of this movie. And we see that. And this is where he really goes way overboard with how he lays into to Dell. And man, Candy's performance in this scene is absolutely heartbreaking. When he's hearing this and you just see him start to break. And then he tells Neil that, you know, I like me and, and people like me and I'm okay with who I am. And then, but then conversely, then to get Steve Martin's reaction of like, I fucked up. I, I crossed the line. This guy's clearly like a wounded man who did not need me to destroy him. I don't know. It's such an impressive scene from an acting standpoint and a writing standpoint. Yeah. I think that Hughes manages to get across a lot and it would have been overblown if Candy actually responded at at the lengths that Steve Martin does because Steve Martin blows up and it feels like it's, it's long. Like he goes so long. Yeah. It's so long. And John Candy just kind of really says, you know, his, uh, you might not like me, but I like me. And that's, that's pretty much it. Like it's just a couple lines, but they are to the point and they do hit right to the heart of it. So they get back in bed together. Uh, Candy has on his bed stand chiclets. Did you ever have chiclets? Oh yeah. The shittiest gum. <laughs> Like, I used to get chiclets, and chiclets would have flavor less time than one of those zebra gums would. What, what was that fruit stripe? There was a, yeah, a gum fruit, with the zebra. Yipes, stripes, or whatever. Fruit stripes, and, gum. Or that yellow, the yellow zebra strike. I can't remember what that gum is. It was the best gum, but it had flavor for five seconds. Yes. But, but, and that's what chiclet is. But not only does he have chiclets, he has Cracker Jacks. And, cigarettes <laughs> and the cracker jacks are all over the bed which that's what i find upsetting oh i also like that they didn't show us this but when he hit the vibrating bed he had the beers on the bed yeah. <laughs> so they don't show it but they just tell us that neil's sleeping in a puddle of beer <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's there's a funny there's a couple of funny cuts that are like horror movie moments mm-hmm. and one is when Dell when Steve Martin notices the socks in the sink and then unfolds the face <laughs> towel and it's a giant pair of whitey tighties. Yes. And there's that big like dun 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 moment. Uh during the night, a burglar breaks into their room and steals all of their cash. Oh yeah, that burglar's hat looks like he's conducting a train in the <laughs> 1870s. <laughs> I like the fact that the guy doesn't pocket the money. He puts it in his hat and stands there and smirks at the two guys as they're sleeping. <laughs> like, he's just real <laughs> satisfied with his burgling. He gets great pleasure from it. Um, so, credit cards confuse me. When they first came out, it seems like credit cards were very specific, where you could only use them at specific stores. Because he talks about, like, I have a Neiman Marcus card. Mm-hmm. So, I... That's a card. It's a credit card, but only for the store in Neiman Marcus, essentially. Yes. 
I mean, I th- that idea of such specific cards. He says, "I have a gas card and this and that." Yeah. So these cards are almost like single use, only at one location, kind of. Yeah, my first credit card was a Best Buy card, uh, and I used it specifically to purchase a computer with a DVD player that I could watch DVDs on in like 1998. Uh, blew all of my hard-earned money and my credit to get a DVD player and purchase two DVDs. My first two DVDs that I bought that day, the only two movies I could watch on this thing were A Bug's Life (laughs) and Clerks. All right. Well, I'm glad you said A Bug's Life and not Ants. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm not a heathen. Um, I've, I don't, I think I've only seen Tusk as far as Kevin... Kevin Williams? Smith. Smith? God damn it. <laughs> Kevin Williams wrote Scream. Yes. Okay, there we go. Yep. I knew he was someone. Um, what's your next scene that you got? Uh, the guys try to catch a train back to Chicago. And I had a question. Have you ever ridden the rails? Very briefly. I took one Amtrak trip when I was a kid from... Like San Diego up towards Santa Cruz or Santa Barbara or, or something like that. I think it was four hours. Okay. I love train journeys. Not that I've been on one, but just watching them in movies and stuff, I think it would really appeal to me, that kind of travel. Mm-hmm. I do too. I've, um, like I said, I've ridden the train from like South Bend or Michigan City up to Chicago uh, when I was younger. We did that a few times. And then when I was like 19, I had a girlfriend whose family owned a train. Uh, it was like a local tourist type train and it would run on a very small loop. Um, so you can't own a train. They totally owned a train. It's wild. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> That's not. People don't own trains like business entities do they had a train um they uh they they were a wild family uh and this woman also had a 1946 chris craft like wooden boat that she had restored with her dad so they were very much um these gearhead type people they always had cars and things and i guess in the midwest you can own a train if you want to um, so when they get on the train here, Neil, Neil basically breaks up with Dell two or three times over the course of this movie. Yeah. And tries to give him the boot. And, um, which I think, I think it helps that by the end, Neil realizes like how dismissive of this guy he's been, where he keeps trying to kick him off without without realizing what he could be potentially doing to this guy by rejecting him. And it's nice how it comes back into play because one of the things that uh, Dell says in response to Neil is I talk too much, but yeah, I listen too much too. And we get, that's a great line. Yeah. We get that Neil doesn't like, that's one of his major character flaws. And 
the other one, I think, being his attitude in general, because he's got a shitty attitude and shitty things happen to him. Dell, even though he's kind of a bore, has a good attitude and winds up having a bunch of good things happen to him over and over again. And people do go out of their way to help him, whereas somebody punches Steve Martin in the face. <laughs> right. Um, have we ridden in the back of the truck yet? Is that how we get to the train station? When they ride in the back of in oh. the bed of the pickup truck? <laughs> yes. So when they introduce that guy, the guy, the whoever's son it is who's going to give them a ride. Yes. <laughs> when his, he tries to spit his tobacco. It goes all over his chin. He wipes his face and immediately shakes Neil's hand. <laughs> Just <laughs> gross ass tobacco spit. And so uh, that guy, do you know who that is? He looked familiar. Uh, that's Dylan Baker. Who, once again, character actor who's been in a bunch of stuff. Um, he was specifically in, I don't know if he's in Spider-Man 1, but I know he's in 2 and 3, I think. Um, the Sam Raimi ones, where he was, I think he's the scientist who was supposed to be the lizard, or is the lizard eventually. Uh, but yeah, that's what I remember him from. He's also in Rook Room for a Dream. Hmm. He looked really familiar. Yeah, it's he normally plays like white collar, dorky, buttoned up guys. So this is like such a stretch for him. I think it's, it's funny to see that he's the opposite. It's like yeah. this movie is like, oh shit, look at the scary blue collar guy. He wears boots and he dips. Yes. And <laughs> that is a total like horror movie moment when he steps yeah. around the edge of the thing and you just you just see his feet step into frame. Yeah. Um so when they're they're in the back of that bed and they try to get the gloves and there's that blue healer dog snapping mm-hmm. at them. This next part, Josh, this is one of the funniest <laughs> things I've ever seen. Yeah. The shot where we get Steve Martin's frozen face <laughs> and then John Candy's frozen face and then the dog's frozen face and they're all the dog. Is stuck in this like half growl where it's showing its teeth uh-huh. and just the goofiness, the goofiness of that moment. I was laughing for like a minute straight after with tears in my eyes because I forgot that was coming. And that is just, God, that's so up my alley for humor. <laughs> it's just, that's like a perfect joke for me. Oh, my sides hurt right now just talking about it. I have that floating rib pain. Uh-huh. Oh, okay, so now the train breaks down, and um, but after we see Neil, Neil dumps him, but then he again sees Dell dragging his suitcase, and he realizes the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So I like that we get Steve Martin's growth in this movie is gradual, and I, I do like that. It's, it, it's not like by the end, all of a sudden... He flips a switch, and then he's a good guy. We see him slowly becoming before he makes his complete realization at the end. Yeah, and he he is, it's kind of in fits and starts. Like, he's more attentive, and then he'll get annoyed again, but then he'll have a greater realization. And it kind of keeps ratcheting up both sides of that, which I think was what makes it work. So they walk to the bus, and another great moment of, uh, Dell's a people person. Neil's not. 
Everyone's on the bus is singing songs. <laughs> Neil sings some fancy boy song that I've never heard of. And everyone stares back at him in a really great moment. And Dell saves the day by singing the Flintstones theme song because he's a man of the people. Mm-hmm. This moment, I never realized it. This is uh, The Office does a complete lift of this or homage to it in an episode where they're all traveling in a bus together and Michael Scott, Steve Carell starts singing the Flintstones theme song. And then as the scene ends, just as in this movie, he goes, Wilma! <laughs> nice little moment. Um, I like the chaos on the bus, and you get the kid in the Boba Fett-looking mask running up and down the aisle with a pinwheel. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a chaotic energy, and uh, I, one of my other jobs was cleaning buses uh, when I was like 17 years old. Uh, like these kind of buses there was a terminal uh, in my hometown and that's what i would do and we we worked late nights cleaning the buses after they would get done running up to chicago and the detritus left over after taking somebody to a cubs game or a bears game was just horrendous i'm sorry the what detritus you know, the Flotsam and Jetsam. <laughs> uh, like, suddenly it's like talking to Chaucer or something. <laughs> so Neil and Dell are at the restaurant. Again, Neil tries to cut him loose saying, hey, I think we had traveled faster if we're out, if we're going solo. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, this that, is oh, where Dell yeah, sells it. Oh, go ahead. He sells a bunch of his shower curtain rings to women in the terminal uh, as earrings. <laughs> and I think that's just uh, a, such I love a when he point. told the, the underage girls, like, you know, they make you look like you're all 18. Yeah. And they, they just hand over, hand the, over the cash. Uh, this uh, is, these are made out of Czechoslovakia and I, ivory. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the helium line that yep. you like. Yep. Um, meanwhile, Neil gets a ride on a bus to a rental car, but the rental car is not there. So he freaks out in a wonderful Steve Martin way, just punching the air and mm-hmm. yelling, God damn it. And it's so great. And then this track, this track back to the rental car office is pretty amazing. <laughs> the, the audio loop that they keep playing too, because they take his freak out and they mix it to this like super 80s sounding synthy beat. I love it. Yeah, they use a clip from the movie in yeah. the score where it's, what is it? It's like, you don't know who you're messing with yeah. or something like that. Yeah. He's in the score as we're watching him go. And he slides down a snowy hill and his hat gets run over. I I love when he walks into the, finally to the office and you see his complete mud ridden shoes mm-hmm. and his dirt face and everything. And the actress they hired to play this woman at the desk, combined with the makeup job and the big hair that they gave her, it's it's so perfect because it's like it's it's just so patronizing. I'm sorry, this actress? That is Edie McClurg, sir. That is national treasure Edie McClurg. I don't know who that is. She plays the receptionist in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yes. I, re- I remembered her from something else. Okay. Yeah. Okay. She, yeah. She was one of the high schoolers in Carrie. 
Uh, she, really? Yeah. Uh, she was in a lot of John Hughes things. Curly Sue. Um, I know. She reminds me of a character from Office Space, I think. The annoying receptionist who answers the phone the exact same way every single time. Every single time that she answers the phone. Um, yeah, it's, I know she was part of, I think she was part of kind of the same comedy group, um, that birthed, uh, John Candy. I know she was part of like Pee Wee's gang as well, which started life as a, as a stand-up comedy or a comedy show before it became a kid's show. That's cool. Yeah. So coming up on this next scene, did PG-13 rating exist at this point? What is this movie rated? Um, what is this movie rated? Because I think it's PG, and I think fuck is said 30 times <laughs> in a PG movie. I'm pretty sure. It can't be PG, can it? It's got to well, be a 13. I, when did 13 come into play? 13 came in because of... Uh, Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones. Okay. Um, yeah, it, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's not on the, it's not on the poster. And, uh, why doesn't Letterboxd list it right on the page along with the details? I don't know. It's not on the Wikipedia either. But anyways, this, this rant, <laughs> when Neil loses his fucking mind, uh-huh. it's so unbelievable because you just feel the intensity boiling over in neil but he also doesn't want to scream at Mm -hmm. this woman Mm because i don't think he wants to make a scene so he's trying to do all of this kind of under his breath in the same stretch this scene is wild (laughs) the it this made me think of uh we were talking about um good lord Jesus. Uh, our dogs are going crazy today. Uh, we were talking about Christmas vacation the other day. And this makes me think of Chevy Chase's freak out scene in oh, that. Yeah. But I think- By the way, listeners, Josh doesn't like Christmas vacation. <laughs> so if you thought this episode was conflicted, just wait until we talk about that movie next month, maybe. <laughs> uh, but I think Steve Martin's freak out is played so much better. Like... Oh, I don't know about that, Josh. Oh, oh I don't know. I think the, the Chevy writing Chase is strong. But Chevy Chase is amazing, man. Chevy Chase has that same thing for me that uh, that Bill Murray does for you. Where like I'm like, I know this guy is an asshole. And I kind of can never forget that when I'm watching him. I've watched... Um... Spies Like Us recently. Oh, shit. That's a good movie. <laughs> I didn't like it. Really? No. I didn't think it was that funny. And I, I know what you mean, because I think Clark Griswold in Christmas Vacation is very endearing. But overall, a lot of Chevy's characters are just assholes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know what you're saying. I mean, Caddyshack. <laughs> he's, yes. he's great, but he's a complete asshole. Um, so after 
uh, he unleashes most of his frustration on per, poor Edie McClurg. He's got a little bit of venom left over for the guy who runs the taxi stand outside. And he mouths <laughs> yeah. off to him. And, but that guy can also dish it out. So he punches him square in the nose. <laughs> Which leads to Dell almost crushing him in the road. Yes, crushing his head like a melon. <laughs> they get in the car and um what what happens next here well i wanted to mention dell's car the car that he gets uh that's a great car i think it's an awesome car it's uh his rental car is wood paneled sedan diesel powered and it has electric seats that's a pretty good car I think it's cool. Yeah, the electric seats in the 80s for a rental. Yep. That was pretty wild. Uh, And I love that style of car, like that boxy um, wood paneled look. Looks like a Volvo or something. So we're about to get to another wonderful comedic sequence. Oh, my God. Again, right up my alley for physical comedy. Mm -hmm. Dell tries to take his jacket off. One arm gets caught on a lever of the chair. Then eventually his other arm gets caught on the other chair. He's driving with his thighs completely trapped. And just dumb physical comedy like this. This is so relevant to me because I've had that feeling where I'm like trying to take a sweatshirt off. But Mm -hmm. I'm lying down on the couch. And so I'm trying to take it off while all of my body weight is still on it. And it's really hard. Uh the little bit leading up to that when first of all he's playing with the chair and he breaks the electric chair uh yeah. electric car seat is very funny and it's just him leaning back and sitting up over and over again in the sound of the motor like Mah, and steve martin getting more and more annoyed at him um but then the other part that always has stuck in my head for this is actually the part where they're playing the Ray Charles song and he's playing piano on the dashboard. <laughs> that part's pretty long. Yes. That that sequence with that Ray Charles song. Yeah. He's doing air trumpet and <laughs> dancing and finger drumming and finger pianoing. Yep. And he's also smoking and he flicks the lit cigarette into the backseat of the car on accident as well. Yeah. Which has always been, even though I don't smoke, that's a fear of mine because I've seen it happen. Oh, yeah, that'll definitely happen. There's a famous story of my grandpa once being on the road or something and peed in a bottle or a cup or something on the road and went to throw it out the window and didn't know that someone in the back had the window down. (laughs) So, and just went out the window and right back in. That's (laughs) upsetting. So, Dell eventually completely loses control and then. Neil wakes up, and then they get back on the road, going the wrong way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this part, this part's pretty wild. I like the the whole gag with this couple driving alongside them, uh-huh. trying to yell at them that they're going the wrong way. And Candy keeps imitating that they're drunk, yes, and doing like the the drinky fingers and. Uh, and I like that the couple, like every time it cuts to them, they say everything in unison, in synchronized. <laughs> yes. Yes. Even when it's a completely new line, like, you're going to kill someone. <laughs> they say it together. It's yeah. <laughs> um, 
I love hubcaps in these movies in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Hubcaps are always just shooting off cars left and right. <laughs> you know? And it's something so pleasing about how the hubcap then just continues to roll on down the yeah. highway. Um, they eventually get squeezed right between two semi-trucks. Scrape the hell out of the car. I love it's such a random ass moment, but when it cuts to the sparks and then it shows them both as skeletons <laughs> and then it shows John Candy as the devil. Yes. <laughs> it's so random, but so funny. And that's those gags wouldn't work if the rest of the movie also wasn't heightened, like with the direction. Yeah. Like yeah. it it fits in barely, but it's because it does have those other kind of like almost cartoony moments when things happen. One that didn't really when when Steve Martin earlier gets grabbed by the balls, yeah. we then have about oh, yes. a minute where <laughs> I don't know if they dubbed him or if they just modulated his voice. But <laughs> it's a little bit much. Yeah, that part's ridiculous. Although I do like John Candy's line of "I've never seen a man picked up by his testicles before." <laughs> well, speaking of testicles, John Candy goes on to, you know, you play with your balls a lot, Neil. <laughs> And at one point, uh, Neil says, you know, it would make me happy. And Dell goes, a pair of balls and an extra set of fingers. <laughs> Barry Bird doesn't do as much ball handling in one night as you do in an hour. <laughs> that was the one I put down. Oh. So after the, the semi-truck thing, the ch- I love how the chest gets catapulted like 40 feet down the highway. Mm-hmm. And they pull the car over, and <laughs> of course the cigarette finally lights it on fire, and it burns to the ground. What a great moment when they're both laughing, <laughs> and Neil goes, "You finally did it to yourself," <laughs> not realizing that it was his credit card on file. <laughs> oh but that God. moment of glee for Neil, of just like you finally fucked yourself over, and he's so happy before realizing that no, once again, Neil's the one that gets fucked. Yep. <laughs> but. The you can see how the two guys are also like starting to grow together when they sit down on the trunk next to each other. And like Neil has gotten a lot more used to having Dell in his physical space. And I think yeah. it's, it's played really well. Oh, the wallet unfortunately was in the glove box. <laughs> I love when Neil shakes Dell when they figure this out and you get like the psh, psh, psh yes. sound of those synthetic jackets. Um, oh, I just have a note. Who is this motel clerk? But I didn't, I didn't uh, figure it out. He just looked extremely familiar. Martin yeah. Ferrero? Who is this? Oh, he's in Jurassic Park. Uh, was he the lawyer in Jurassic Park? Wait, what? Martin Ferrero. F-E-R-R-E-R-O. Yeah, he was the lawyer. Oh, okay. That's where I know him from. I Wild. mean, he was also in Miami Vice, so. When you gotta go, you gotta go. <laughs> uh, oh, you might know him from Air Bud World Pup. You know, I I have like a weird thing about watching dog movies where they, <laughs> they, they make me extremely sad. Not even the sad ones. Like, I remember walking through blockbuster when i was about 13 or 14 you remember the Benji movies oh yeah yeah just seeing a cover for one of those movies shot me into like such a weird depression 
and I, I couldn't figure out if it's because it was a moment where I realized that like that's that's a movie for kids and I'm not a kid anymore. And so maybe it was like a moment of like I've lost some part of my childhood. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, but I still kind of think about that. So when I see movies like Airbud or something else, there's always like a deep sadness deep in those movies for me that I have not worked out why yet. Oh, but you don't have to you don't have to leave behind your childhood. You can still enjoy those movies. They're good. I watch Scooby-Doo all the time. I mean, come on. I never I never even watched the Airbud movies as a kid though. <laughs> they just make me sad even though I haven't seen them. But you're right. I should watch some more Scooby-Doo. That's good stuff. Scooby-Doo uh, Mystery Incorporated is my recommendation. It's a, it's a good series. So um they get to the hotel and once again Neil tries to kick Dell um <laughs> as they drive the burned out car there. The, the scene or the shot of Steve Martin pulling the his burnt wallet from his pocket and then pulling his burnt up credit cards out <laughs> of the wallet and presenting them is so <laughs> it's one of those like perfect Steve Martin kind of moments like it's so ridiculous and he's playing it totally straight neil has 17 bucks and a watch he gets a room dell does not so he's gonna leave dell to just sit in this parking lot and potentially die yeah it's just freeze to I'm thinking yeah um but again it's funny that they both have their little monologues to themselves in this scene mm-hmm. um but candy's essentially talking to his wife and um, his acting here again, um, when he brings it in and this movie and when he becomes self-reflective of who he is and how he carries himself, um, I, I just feel so bad for this guy. I, I really do. I think, first of all, any time that you have to do talking to self-acting, that's the hardest thing in the world to do. How do you do it without it sounding completely absurd? Yeah. Um, I was watching. Oh, no, there was. um, I was previewing somebody's uh, short film the other day, and they had a character say a line to themselves like, oh, people live out this far when they see some people in the woods. And I was like, we don't need that line. You, You put it in there to make it obvious what's going on. And I realized that's what most of talking to yourself is. It's like they're doing radio instead of showing you a, a program, showing you a, a movie or a short or whatever. Um, the other one that comes to mind is, I don't know if you've seen the new Spider-Man movies. They make poor Tom Holland talk to himself for like a whole sequence uh, in, I think, the first Spider-Man movie that he's in. Um and he talks to a disembodied robot voice as well. And he does pretty well. I like it when good actors do it because they play it off as something better. And in this, John Candy, when you don't know that his wife is dead, it's affecting. When you know that his wife is dead, it's even more affecting. I was going to say, watching this movie the second time, I found this so much more impactful and emotional knowing what the twist or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it is that I watched it with a completely different perspective where now I'm more patient with Dell mm-hmm. than I was. Maybe the first time I'm more of a Neil guy where I'm like, yeah, this guy's 
annoying as hell. Why is this guy sticking on to me? And then on second viewing, yeah, I want Neil to be patient. I want Neil to listen. Yeah. Um, so Neil also has the moment where he realizes that what is does he flashback to some good times with Dell here? Oh no, that's later that's on the later. flashback. But he just realizes that he needs to bring him in. And this when they're hanging out near the bed and they're talking about taking a trip to Italy, the amaretto, oh, let's go to Mexico, some tequila. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, Neil goes, Is this a good combo or what? Tequila and Doritos. Uh, and Dell just goes, Nope. nope. <laughs> <laughs> but I this scene is such a payoff for yes. me. Just to see these guys laughing and enjoying each other and respecting each other. It, it, it's like, it's such a relief of that. It's like a pressure valve has finally been like let go in this movie. And we're now just able to just enjoy these two guys and their friendship together. It's, um, I don't know how closely you've watched X-Files. Uh, Not at all. Okay. In the very first episode, um, Mulder and Scully are at odds kind of the whole time. Um, and then there's a moment in the hotel room when they sit down and it's very much like this, where one of them is sitting on the bed and the other one is like off to the side and they have a heart to heart moment. And I think the first time I saw this, I flashed back to that and now vice versa because it was within just a couple of years of each other. but to have that kind of um, it and Steve Martin calls it out. It's like being at summer camp, right? Like that's a great moment. Yeah. Just laying there and having kind of a heart to heart. And it's always the time of like, it always trended into something like, what do you think happens when we die? Or like, like, do you believe in ghosts kind of talk? Oh yeah. Or just like, I remember so many like formative nights of like, just talking to my friends when we're, 10 or 11 about like having our first crushes and uh-huh. talking about girls in our class. And this was stuff that would never be discussed except somehow of like the sanctity of like when we're going to bed at a slumber party yes. and the lights are out. So my friend's up on his bed and I'm on an air mattress over in the corner or whatever. And that was where we would have like the conversations that weren't supposed to be had. Right. You know, it was always, you can let down your guard and it was almost like, that little, the liminal area between being awake and being asleep kind of made it okay to talk about like feelings and things. Yes. It is. Yeah. And then just like waiting for your friend to respond and then be like, are you asleep? Yes. And then go for five more minutes and then you fall asleep. And, Oh, those are some good memories. Uh, I did find out that there's never really an okay time. Though, to tell your friend that you think his older sister is hot. There's never a good time for that conversation. What age did you do that? Oh, it was it was probably around 11 or 12. How old was his sister? I think she was like 14, maybe 15. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, if my friends... Yeah, I wouldn't be happy if my friends told me that. Yeah, it was very much like he told me he had a crush on somebody... Uh, and I kind of thought it was okay because he was in a grade underneath me and he had a crush on someone in my grade. I didn't even realize that he was actually older than me. I was the youngest one in my grade and he was one of the oldest in his. <laughs> so they gotcha. were closer in age. 
You also didn't realize that having a crush on a random student is not the same thing as crushing on one's sister. No, that made it weird for some reason. <laughs> yeah, for some reason. <laughs> Maybe I'll get to the bottom of that one day. <laughs> no one ever wants to hear that, though. Right? So, um, we're driving, right? We're driving again. This is where we get pulled over on the highway. <laughs> this shot where they're trying to get the car out of the snowbank. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they decide to rock it back and forth. And so Dell puts it in reverse and backs up through the front of the hotel room is ridiculous. And I love that. Neil, like, sorry, Neil tried to push the car from the side, slipping in the snow. Yes. Just great physical comedy. <laughs> and when the car goes backwards, this made me think of like, this is shit that you could only get away with in a studio comedy for a short period of time, I feel like. And maybe you still can. Um, you wouldn't have seen it, but the Robert Downey Jr. movie uh, Due Date, I think they destroy some cars in that. Uh, I think I have seen it. Okay. There's a French bulldog and Zach Galifianakis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like um, the it's like a diet hangover movie, yes. kind of. Yep. Yeah. I, I liked it better than the hangover because the hangover feels too mean. <laughs> I think if I rewatched The Hangover now, I'd be like, wow, this movie is very toxic and mean. And like, just thinking back on it now, I was like, ah, did that movie suck? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, The weird thing is, um, the guy who wrote at least Hangover 2 is the same guy who wrote the Chernobyl miniseries. (laughs) No. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, he's pretty used to meltdowns. Ah. I don't, no, that wasn't good. There was a joke there, but it wasn't that. <laughs> it wasn't that. Uh, but yeah, the destruction of like, they had to destroy, build a set to destroy for this one shot. And it's only one shot that I just, I love that kind of like, that's movie making right there. That's big budget. You can't get away with that on a low budget movie, you know, this is something special because of those, these ridiculous things they do. And then yes, they get pulled over, um, by, Oh, what's his name? Michael, Michael McKean. McKean. Yep. Of better call Saul fame. And oh, you mentioned Prairie home companion earlier. Yes. And I watched that movie, but I don't think I, that movie was done any favors by the fact that, Two weeks before, I had watched A Mighty Wind, mm. and I think A Mighty Wind blows that movie out of the water. Yes. Um, I think that that, uh, that trio of movies, um, and I don't think Michael McKean is in Waiting for Guffman, is he? I haven't seen, I've only seen, if you're talking about Christopher. Christopher Guest, yeah. Um, I've only seen Best in Show. And Mighty Wind. Okay. Uh, Waiting for Guffman is the other one. Like, those three movies are astonishingly good. (laughs) Every time I watch them, and all three of them make me emotional, and I laugh my ass off. Yeah, there's surprisingly heartfelt. Yeah. um, Best in Show. And rest in peace, Fred Willard, because he is so unbelievably funny (laughs) in Best in Show. And unfortunately, he's only in um, 
a mighty wind for a few minutes. But in a mighty wind, they gave him like spiked blonde bleached yes. hair. <laughs> it's just Fred Willard just seemed like such a cool guy who was just down to do anything if people thought it was funny. Have you seen Review, the Andy Daly TV show? No. Oh, Josh, it's, it's Jesus Christ. Oh my God, hang on a second. That that was loud. Um, so at my job, we often get little um, perks and promos from companies. Um, I get a lot of hats from artists. And uh, last week, I got a bottle of Jack Daniels and some shot glasses and a hat and a bandana from an <laughs> artist promoting their song. <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit of an ironic gift. Yes, uh, but I took it to uh, a bonfire we had with some friends and gave the, the bottle away, and I was the hit of the of the bonfire, I would say. There you go. But today... A little guitar. <laughs> a little tiny guitar. What's it made of? I, I think it's it's very light. Are there strings on it? There are strings on it. And little wow. and little frets. Uh and this is to promote an artist? Yes. I don't know. Don't say their name. Don't say their name. Yeah, we're no buzzer. I, I I refuse to promote it on this show. <laughs> uh I think they have a signature. I will I will You can show me the signature, but just don't say it out loud. Okay. I will buzz mark it. The, I've never heard of that person. I haven't either. But there's a QR code on the back. Mm. And I think you can probably listen to his record. Um, but I think it's a signature model of Fender Telecaster, which is a product I would promote if they ever asked me to. It's my my favorite guitar. How do you get a signature model guitar if, if nobody's heard of you? Uh, I mean... Maybe he is like one of the hot country licks guys, and and people love him in that field. Hmm. He has under seven thousand followers on Instagram. Then how does he have Fender? <laughs> I don't think he does. But how is he affording to send out novelty toy guitars? Yeah. <laughs> This is ridiculous. What's going on here? It came with a little brochure and everything. And in a, in a fake guitar case. <laughs> this is wild. One of the weirder things I've gotten recently. <laughs> I love that we're refusing to say his name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this asshole. <laughs> so, so, Fred Willard, have you, you have not seen Review. Let me just tell you about Review. It's Andy Daly stars as the host of a TV show called Review. Okay. And basically, users submit life reviews that he then has to review. So things such as, what's it like to get addicted to something? What's it like to steal? Um, all sorts of stuff like that. And then he has to go through with it. But <clears throat> the show is a complete arc, and it's only about 19 episodes total. But everything that happens has impact as the show progresses. So it's just this like wonderfully built world. And it's 
it's so short. It's I think it was like ten, six, and three episode seasons. Okay, and it's just so perfect, so succinct. Andy Daly is one. It's like one of the best comedic performances I've ever seen on a TV show. It sucks that it's only available. I think on Comedy Central to stream. I can get you the files if you want. <laughs> um, but it's it's amazing. And Fred Willard plays his uh, father-in-law on the show. And Fred Willard is so damn funny on it. So I have to one-up you in the obscuritness category here. Have you ever seen Fernwood Tonight? Mm-mm. Uh, it was a show in the late 70s produced by Norman Lear and Alan Thicke. And it starred Martin Mull as the host of a late night talk show and Fred Willard as his sidekick. The, the Ed to his Johnny, basically. Um, and it's a spoof of late night talk shows. It is the most ridiculous thing. I used to love it. They would show it on Nick at night, like in the early nineties. And that's where I fell in love with, um, these guys comedy, which was very much like the SCTV kind of feeling to it. Uh, and I think it also has one of the rare performances from Tom Waits as one of their musical guests. One time, it's just a weird show, uh, that I really enjoyed. What do you mean? Rare performances by Tom Waits, like a televised performance. Oh, I gotcha. Yeah. Cause I've seen him act in a bunch of things. Yeah. He's, he's in something coming out. I mainly remember him from the Book of Eli. The Book of Eli was like a good ripoff of the Fallout games until I hated the ending. <laughs> Have you seen it? I'm sorry, the Fallout games? Fallout 3. Oh, you know, the, the, the post apocalyptic. So when you said the Fallout games, you said it in the same cadence as someone would say the Hunger Games? And gotcha. so I conflated the two things in my head and I was like, there's no Fallout games, but Book of Eli is similar to the Fallout game series. Games. <laughs> Thank you. Got it. Uh, but, you know, me and things that turn Christian that annoys me and that movie turns Christian. So let's move on. Um, buddy, their car gets impounded. We are at like the end of this movie here. Yep. We're going to make our way over to uh, in the back of a refrigerator truck in a cheese truck. Oh, we're gonna make our way to Chicago. I was scared when they were actually driving the car that next day. Those wheels look like they're about to fly off. <laughs> yeah, like they're like. <laughs> it looks like they removed that. That was a wonderful sound effect. <laughs> It looked like they removed all but one nut. Yep. And those things were just hanging on for dear life. Uh, so they get a ride. They get to the, chi the Chicago. This train station is so cool. Wherever they are. Um, just beautiful. I've never been to Chicago either. Mm -hmm. I've never. I've seen like nothing of this country. But it looks cool in movies. <laughs> yep. That's, and, that's uh, the L. So they say goodbye one final time. And they both kind of say, thank you so much. And um, I believe Neil says, you got me home and I'm a little wiser too. Yeah. Which, if that's not kind of 
everything about this movie in a nutshell. Those those two little lines. And there's this interplay, the way that everything cuts together, that they have edited um, Neil, his thought process while he's sitting on the train going home. Um, it cuts from like him on the train to him picturing his his Thanksgiving dinner at home with his family to him having a memory of Dell. And it builds like there's a couple audio things and then it's we're full on in his memory. Like we see flashbacks basically. Um, but he comes to the realization that there's something else going on with Dell. I don't think he put the final piece together, but I think that he knows that Dell is reaching out and really needs something more than what he's given him. Their, their vague promise, maybe I'll see you around kind of thing that they did. I also really like the memory flashbacks because it shows kind of that he maybe considers Dell a little bit of family at this point, where he's thinking about his family, but then he has the same smile just thinking about his recent adventure with Dell. And yeah, Steve Martin, so sweet. The music really builds. And there's one more, I think it's earlier in the movie when he really screams at Dell in the hotel room. Mm-hmm. And then this music kind of kicks in with Candy's performance. Uh, but yeah, that big synthy swell leads to that emotional realization. And when he gets back and sees Dell sitting alone and asks, why are you here? Why aren't you home? And we get the whole backstory from John Candy that he doesn't even have a home. Uh, his wife died eight years ago and he's just been... Like, literally living on the road, hotel to hotel since then. Um, it's it's just, it's, it's sad. This scene is a little bit brief for me, honestly. Mm-hmm. I could have used a little bit more on the tail end before we cut to them walking to, to Neil's house. Um, the way that they bring all these elements back in, and that they've used the remixes of... Uh, lines from it within the score it recontextualizes what we saw earlier like i think that's how it plays is not just like hey remember this funny thing that you saw a minute ago it's like you were annoyed along with steve martin's character maybe the first time but now looking back at it 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 is it's sweeter and you play so much off of his emotion in that moment that it turns it into something else like a fondness. And I think it's really the editing and that the, I mean, it goes back to Eisenstein, right? Like basic film theory of you show somebody with an expression next to a, an edit point and you think that they're reflecting on that. (laughs) And so like it totally, they use all the tools of filmmaking here in a really great way and it's not overly manipulative i don't feel it's pronounced einstein oh thank you (laughs) (laughs) um so one plot point that was cut from this movie that i think is interesting is we often see neil on the phone with his wife or trying to call his wife and we get a couple shots of her alone in bed um there was a side story where she thinks that he, this his story's bullshit essentially, and she's concerned that he's cheating on her, oh. or that that something's not right. Mm-hmm. That you know, um, 
he's hiding something. And so at the very end here, where they walk in, and she sees that Dell's real, and she walks in, she says, hello, Mr. Griffith. Yeah. It's kind of this moment of relief, but then also, I think, even deeper love for her husband, that mm -hmm. he brought this man home. And I, I know she doesn't know like the details, but it's like a, a combination of relief and love that she feels for him. Um, just thinking about it right now, even, uh, I'm getting a little goosebumpy thinking of, uh, Neil introducing Dell to his family. That, yeah. that little act of like, see, it's gotten me a little bit. <laughs> Shit. Oh my God. Oh my God. It got me a little bit of him saying, this is my friend. Yeah. And this is my family. And it's so, it's such a nice little note at the end of this. I love it so much. And to close on John Candy, as we do, and to see, it, he looks a little broken at the start of the shot, but then we just see this smile creep up on his face as he feels family around him again. It, yeah, I, I definitely started crying at the end of this movie, like, without a doubt. I think you'd have a heart of stone not to. I, John Candy is just, he's so easy to connect to for me. Mm -hmm. He's so easy for me to put my heart where his heart is and to feel what he's feeling. It's the, uh, that simultaneous thing where when he meets Neil's family and especially his wife, like the way that it's cut it looks like he is thinking about his wife. Like that's, I think the implication is he misses his wife and then he feels the warmth of getting to be in the situation again after almost a decade on his own, basically, or out. We've, we've seen people that Dell knows out on the road, right? Like diner waitresses and the hotel clerk and stuff like that. And people love him. Yes. They they think yeah. he's charming and uh Which it's... almost makes his loneliness even more tragic, the fact that he is such a warm, kind people person mm -hmm. and yet still he's completely isolated. Yeah. And Neil starts this movie being kind of a cold dick, and yet he has surrounded he's surrounded by loving family. Um I was a little bit reminded of once again a Simpsons um the Frank Grimes episode. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> when totally. He's like, you live in a mansion. I, I live <laughs> above a bowling alley below another bowling alley. <laughs> Grimy. Yep. Grimy. Uh, but oh, is it just sad. me or do you want the continuation of of this dinner? Like, I would like to just bask in the rest of this afternoon these people have. Oh, I I would love to just yeah, watch John Candy become more and more elated. And we know from Uncle Buck and everything that he's going to get along straight away with those kids mm -hmm. and just connect. Yeah, I would I would love to see it. Cuz it really does feel like this is the start of like a long-term friendship or relationship. Yeah. Like this man really is being adopted into the family. And this is not a one-time thing or anything. And you don't get a whole lot of comparison because you only see him at the beginning. 
But I also thought of um, Lyman Ward from the very beginning of the movie, who also commutes from Chicago to New York for his job. And uh, Neil had asked him, like, hey, can you grab my gloves and bring them by my house tomorrow? I'm running late for my flight. Um, And you see, like, the perfunctory sort of nature that their relationship had. And the fact that Neil was trying to signal, like, hey, I need to get out of here. I need to get out of the office. And Lyman wasn't understanding it. Like, and I feel like those guys, even though they might spend a, have spent a lot of time together, have this very business cold kind of relationship where they're very adult and very kind of like, we, we relate to each other on the golf course kind of thing. And it's, you see his relationship grow with Dell throughout the course of this. And it feels like something much warmer and more real and fulfilling. It's yes, it's I didn't even kind of connect the fact that Steve Martin's also commuting frequently. So it's two men on the road mm-hmm. where both complete loners. And yeah, I, I just think by the end of this movie, the journey that both have gone through, the fact that both men have become a little wiser, maybe Dell tones things down a little and Steve Martin listens a little more. It it just wraps things up so perfectly for me in a way that like John Hughes was one of the few directors that was just tuned into this feeling. Uh, yeah, that's, I've only seen this one a couple times, but, um, uh, the breakfast club is one of his movies that has lived on my phone or on my iPads. Like it's one of my comfort movies. So okay. I, I make sure like I, I bought the digital copy and make sure that I always have it downloaded to my devices. So if I'm stuck somewhere, I can hang out with my friends. <laughs> and I, I completely get that. Yep. Uh, I have that with the, like Carl Pilkington. I mm. always got to have a little bit there just as it's just in case of emergency. Yep. My security blanket. Yes. That's a great way to put it. Uh, so what do you, well, what do you rate yeah. this one? I clearly love this movie very much, and this is this is an annual. I might try to get my family to watch this, to be honest with you, because every Thanksgiving we watch um, Christmas Vacation after we eat dinner. Mm-hmm. But I might try to bring this one in. For me, personally, this is going to be an annual watch from now on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's the exact little heart boost I need to remind me of all of kind of why we're traveling and not to get stressed out and bogged down in the family side of things, but to, to listen a little more and maybe be a little more patient. So it's a four and a half out of five. It's, it's just amazing. It's funny. It's a heartfelt. The directions on point, Steve Martin and John Candy are two of the all time greats. I, I don't know what else you could really ask for this movie. Um, I rated it a little lower and I'm not quite sure why I just went with my rating that I had put on in 2015. Um, but I've got four stars and a heart for it because it does hit me right in the heart at the end. Um, and yeah, like you said, it's great. It probably should be an annual watch, although I've been really bad with my annual watches lately. So, uh, 
maybe every six years is, is my cycle for it. <laughs> I have, there's like three movies in October. Now I have one Thanksgiving movie. And then I think I have about three movies in December. My December movies are what was it, like Home Alone, Christmas Vacation, and A Christmas Story. I would say are my my three Christmases that I got to get in. Mm-hmm. And then if I want to go horror, um, I know we're talking, uh, maybe talking about Black Christmas. That that movie kicks ass. Uh, my Christmas movies, and this comes from, I mainly watched movies with my mom growing up. Um, so our Christmas movies were Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. I do watch Die Hard often around Christmas too. Yes. Yeah. Because uh, my mom loves action movies, and we would watch all the Van Dams and the Steven Seagal's uh, and all of those also growing up. But uh, Die Hard's amazing. It, yeah, it holds up just as well every single time I watch it. I'm just as into it as I was the previous year. Yeah, it's a great movie. And then the one that I've added since then is, and you're gonna love this, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I tried to watch it once uh-huh. and i just was not in the mood for it i think i only lasted like five minutes uh-huh. one of the things i don't it's just the title i don't like that title what it's something about it i don't like the title <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i i don't know probably because again my weird thing with like physical affection mm-hmm. so if your movie title starts with kiss kiss then right off the bat i'm like ew <laughs> So it's a good thing we didn't watch Kiss Me Deadly for November. You would have been right out the door. Kiss Me. Oh, that's a good title. Isn't it Kiss though? Me Deadly. Yeah, I like that. There's another one I just found called Kiss the Blood Off My Fists. That's pretty cool. And I was like, that's a fucking badass title right there. Yeah. Well, that will do it for another episode from Nashville CA. I don't think we quite have our schedule yet worked out for what we're going to be talking about in the future so uh check the discord we'll post it on there uh you got anything else josh no um i've i've really enjoyed these last couple episodes after having guests uh all of october i think that was really fun and a great thing to do but uh i enjoyed getting to to talk in a little different way these last couple weeks it's been really good yeah i think we'll have a guest on again in the next two or three episodes probably Mm -hmm. and get a few going um but yeah i mean it was it was it was a long october (laughs) it's it's really fun to do these every two weeks again yes so uh that'll do it for us thank you listeners for hanging out with us we really appreciate it we know we're long-winded we don't apologize but we do acknowledge it (laughs) (laughs) so until next time be kind to yourselves Be kind to your neighbors. Take care, everybody. We'll see you later.